This episode of How To Wrestling was requested by Jenna LeBlanc as a gift for Will Young, one of our lovely backers over at patreon.com forward slash howtowrestling. Kevin! There's a fun new mobile game out that combines our love of hunks, wrestling and addictive video games. That's right, folks. It's called The Muscle Hustle and it's available for download for free on Google Play and the App Store now. And as the best things in life are free, if you enter the code HOWTOECW, you'll get a free gift from us to you in-game. And I promise to you, the gift will be sweeter than the sunrise or the smile of Bobby Lashley, whichever one you deem to be more beautiful. It's a great way to support independent creators in wrestling and one of the most fun mobile wrestling games we've played. And the only problem is you'll end up like me, wishing that characters like Bare Knuckle Bob, Terrible Terry and Nature Boy Nutcrusher were real and had rightful NXT developmental deals. What exactly are you afraid of, Triple H? But for now, it's time to get extreme and enjoy our new episode. It's time for How To ECW. Greetings, friends, and welcome to another episode of How To Wrestling, the world's first podcast detailing how to wrestling, how to get into wrestling, how to understand wrestling, and goodness knows maybe even how to enjoy wrestling. And today we are taking things to the extreme. I'm going to say that word so many times I'm already cringing and feeling sick about it, but the E word is the word of the day. Hello, once again, I'm the extreme cowboy, Kevin Mann, joined by my extreme life partner, who I like to go on extreme walks with and do extreme yoga and extreme brunch it's joe gray extreme hello it's joe graham i don't want anyone to be like you know writing joe letters going uh dear miss grixtreme (laughs) (laughs) i disappointed you're a podcast about ecw how are you getting on today joe fine thanks yeah how are you i'm very very well there's a few times when we do episodes of this podcast where people kind of reckon ahead of time I want to say maybe worry for you almost about what you're about to watch and what's going to go down. And this is one of those episodes. Why do you think people are a little bit scared about today getting to grips with ECW? I think it's quite obvious why. I mean, it's in the name of the episode, Mm -hmm. ECW, which stands for Extreme Championship Wrestling. No, not its old moniker. It used to be Eastern Championship Wrestling. It sounds like I have a real hatred for. Oh, those Eastern wrestlers. (laughs) Oh, I hate them. See, Joe, just you know, when you get with a with a man from Westmeath, you just really kind of feel for the West, like (laughs) you hate the East. I lived in Lincoln for you know several years, so I have a a real East affiliate. Were we? Were we in the? Oh, East Midlands. Of course we were. (laughs) Kevin's mind is blown. That's why the airport was called that as well. (laughs) When I was a kid, I used to get bullied when I went to, to big school in Dublin because I was from Westmeath mm. and my parents said well what you can do with them uh, mean children from Meath who are making fun of you you can just let them know that it used to be known as Eastmeath and Westmeath it, it literally did nothing it made really? it worse did like it? yeah they rebranded as Extreme Meath and then it was just like not fun for me anymore <laughs> at all but yeah I think that I don't really like like a lot of violence makes me upset yes. I'm a a gentle, soft child who cannot handle things like gore and <laughs> blood and 
and things. Okay. I like it when I know wrestlers are really safe and they're not going to get injured. Yeah, if you're on a Patreon review a series at the moment and every time it's like exposed, there was a, you know, there was padding on the elimination chamber. <laughs> like, Yay! There was an, like, literally the airbag underneath the table, I think, is Joe's wrestler of the mm. year so far. <laughs> MVP. So, I mean, I kind of, I will say off the bat, right, we're about to do kind of an overview of this company, a bit of a potted history about it, and kind of some of the things that it kind of brought to the table. I will say, if you are listening to this, there's probably some required listening beforehand, because we have covered one or two kind of cornerstones of this company, specifically Paul Heyman, which is an episode that we've done. I really think you should listen to it before you listen to this one. Also, The Sandman, for a bit of an info about the locker room vibe and maybe some of the culture in the locker room amongst the wrestlers in ECW. And maybe even a bit about our episode about the Dudley Boys to kind of know about we're not dealing with, you know, the kid gloves are off. We're talking full rated or 18s, whatever you want to call it here. So we'll start things off when we're trying to figure out ECW. You mentioned maybe some of them there, safety being one, but what are the things you like most about wrestling? In general. In, just generally. When we watch it, because we don't just watch wrestling for, for podding, we watch it for fun, and mm. it happens to be fun to pod about it. Mm. But what are your favourite things about wrestling? Um, that's an interesting question. Flips, definitely, are up there. I've always loved some good flips in wrestling. So when you say flips, you just mean someone coming off that top rope? I don't know, flip de doos Not necessarily <laughs> off the top rope, because there are lots of good flips within the ring. Yeah. Uh, especially if you are watching NXT at the moment, and you've seen Ricochet oh. do his flip de doos Any power flips from Ricochet you could recommend fans to check out? Mm-hmm. Or any particular good flips that he's done recently <laughs> that you're you know, impressed by? The one where he runs towards the ropes. Yeah, and then runs back and then he bounces off the back ropes and then he does a flip in the ring and then he flips over the ropes to the outside of the ring and then he lands right in front of his opponent who is outside I don't know names of moves but it's just flips isn't it like yeah. but I mean that is actually on our first date how I approached you if you remember mm. you were just hanging out and I was just near a wrestling ring and I just yeah. ran across to the big L flip and no big deal dive and uh, our love grew from that moment <laughs> flips something you like flip de doos we could expand the, the terminology to what other things about wrestling do you like I appreciate eye candy. I, I think a big part of wrestling is the aesthetic of it. Mm. So I'm going to go out and say hunks of any gender. Okay. I just, I like a, you know, a cool looking person. Mm. That's my bag, my jam. Are you talking straight up like, you're talking about bods and faces? Or are you talking about like actual yes. character mm. outfits and stuff? Both. But with bods and faces, I want people thinking that I'm only into like these generically handsome muscle stars. Because, mm-hmm. like, no, I've got a big old crush on Samoa Joe, too. Okay, he's, okay. A, he's a super hunk. So you're, talking, you're, you're expanding the horizons from the, the narrow view of... You're reclaiming the word hunk from that narrow mindset, Yeah, it's not just <laughs> about, you know, like how handsome or beautiful or muscular a person is. It's, uh, okay. it's not about that. It's about more than that. Them okay. as a complete being. So am I right to say that you like kind of professional looking wrestlers like someone who looks like they've put a bit of time into their costume and whatnot well, you can yeah, see but... where I'm going with this ECW fan. no because I don't want to say because prof- like okay Sam Mann's look for example yeah. I love mm. and I wouldn't say that's a professional look no I would say that for most of the roster at ECW who have kind of like hey t-shirts and jeans and yeah. trousers are really comfy but like for Sam Mann, that's a look. He's okay. got the bleached hair. He's got the, you know, the nasty, scowly face. Mm. Sandman is a total honk. Okay. 
Any other things in wrestling that you that you're particularly a fan of? Great characters, I think. Mm. And that's that's kind of broad, right? That would encompass lots and lots of different people, obviously. But I love a good heel mm. as well. Like Adrian Neville, like one of my absolute faves. <sighs> Seth Rollins as heel when he was feuding against Brock, one of my absolute faves. Tommaso Ciampa currently feuding against Johnny Gargano. Amazing. But not just heels, because I, I like a lot of other characters as well, like Kyrie Sane and, and Shayna Baszler. Mm. I love both of them. Oh, Nikki Cross as well. And I was mentioning a lot of NXT women, but that is just because I've just watched a lot of NXT recently. <laughs> so they are fresh in my mind. So characters, then you're talking about people who kind of almost have a defined logic to them because i mean consistency and like you know their their decisions as a character make sense and it goes along to kind of take part of a storyline and am i right in saying this because i've sometimes struggled when i'm like trying to introduce you to wrestlers who i think i love or or my like kind of little cult faves or whatever and i tend to find if someone's story or their gimmick as a wrestler is they're a great wrestler and they're coming here to get the job done and show that's what a great not. wrestler is. You don't tend to... That's not a story. It's no. not a character. That's everyone. That should be everyone <laughs> within the entire industry of wrestling. So if your thing that sets you apart from everyone else is that you are a wrestler and you really want to win... Yeah. Well, fucking whoop de doo Who cares? So does everyone else who's here. You've got to have more than that. Okay. For me, personally. Now let's move into the, uh, into the red here, into the negative zone, all right? What are some of the things about wrestling that maybe you're less fond of or we could I'd say straight up you don't like top would be I don't like cruel treatment of minorities okay and you're including women and people of color in your yeah in your discussion people with dwarfism as well yeah find that very upsetting when they use as like just some silly joke match very few tears were shed in the how to wrestling hq about big cats big cats sorry big cats yeah i'm glad he's gone (laughs) i don't like pointless storylines that don't go anywhere like when they set up a story and then it just fizzles or they clearly change their mind or get bored of it and then it doesn't ever pay off okay i don't like that i don't like excessive violence for no reason. What's excessive violence? Well, like, okay, so I know people have called me out on this because I like Jimmy Havoc. You do, and that's, that's the thing here now, is that a lot of people are thinking, oh, Joe's going to hate ECW, but I'm thinking, you like Sandman, you like Jimmy Havoc, you appreciate Paul Heyman creatively. Yeah. I'm thinking you're going to fucking love ECW. In spite of some of these other things. Yeah, I, I don't know, maybe I will, but <laughs> the reason I like Sandman, okay, is his whole character is... He, before he even gets to the ring, he's bleeding. Yeah. He's beating himself up already with a beer can. That's who he is. That's an essential <laughs> part of his character. Yeah, okay. So that's not, that's not excessive violence for no reason. And he's not going to get injured from doing that. I know, you know, worst case scenario, he's going to have a horrible, ugly, scarred forehead well into his old age. Or he might get hit with a frying pan again. <laughs> I don't like that, though. But mm. I consider that excessive violence for no reason. I don't want to see people get hit in the head with a frying pan. That's upsetting. Okay, but Jimmy Havoc. And, okay, Jimmy yeah, Havoc. If a lot of people maybe have not listened to a Jimmy Havoc episode thinking, oh, that's just someone who's, who's yeah. not like a big name or whatever in the US or maybe a name you've not heard of. Deathmatch wrestler based in the UK and one who you found to be very fascinating. I don't know if I could come up with a clear reason why I enjoy Jimmy Havoc's deathmatch wrestling style, but Mm. I haven't enjoyed certain matches which have gotten really bloody and gory. Yeah. And I don't know if it's because 
Jimmy Havoc, I consider Jimmy Havoc an expert when it comes to that style of wrestling. Like, he puts his body on the line. He knows that and he loves that. And Is it that you know that, that you've read or you've heard, we watched interviews with him saying, I love doing this, this is my art form or whatever. Is maybe that... it's that. Maybe it's also the fact that from everything I've heard, he sounds like the nicest guy. Like, no one has a bad word to say about Jimmy. Mm. He seems to always be really careful with the people he works with to make sure that they're comfortable doing the things that he's doing. He never, like, takes it too far and, like, you know, does things that could potentially hazard someone's health. The only thing he'd ever do is maybe do something that might hazard his own body, which, you know, mad props to that, because I've heard of a yeah. lot of wrestlers kind of taking advantage of situations where... They... <laughs> Plenty of that here tonight, folks. <laughs> <laughs> and also, you know, he's a deathmatch wrestler, so right. that's not excessive violence for no reason. That's the genre of wrestling. Because recently we did How To Steve Austin Revisited. On Patreon, we were revisiting all of our old episodes and kind of adding to the story. And if you listen to our Steve Austin episode, there's a very obvious gap of what we didn't talk about there. And we recently sat down to chat about it. But for that as well, we watched Kurt Angle versus Stone Cold from SummerSlam 2001 which I think is a great brawl but when I showed it to you you were watching it almost through like Mm. you know like it was one of the most violent things and is that because they weren't deathmatch wrestlers they were just regular wrestlers who were bleeding a lot in a match maybe that's it (laughs) I'm not sure because both Steve Austin and Kurt Angle have been involved in matches that I've seen have ended up getting very violent and bloody. Mm. Like, obviously, you've got the, the match with Kurt Angle versus Shane McMahon. Yes. Oh, God, Which yeah. is horribly gory. But I loved that match, even though technically that went totally wrong and it is excessive violence for no good reason. I don't... Mm. Honestly, I don't know. Maybe I'm just a hypocrite. I, I think, yeah, it's, it's hard to tell because sometimes it's, it's dependent on the context of what you're feeling at the time, you or know? maybe okay you know what i'm hoping it is i hope that it's the fact that people like jimmy havoc who make it their job to use violence as part of their wrestling style to tell a story Mm. they understand more the power of doing it in a way that tells a story rather sometimes i think the pacing or the purpose of using blading or a lot of violence in other wrestling matches or shows does it for the sake of oh we just have to suddenly pull a big big thing out of our hat to mm. impress the audience or make everyone shocked whereas right, yeah. i kind of feel with deathmatch wrestling they're already expecting that so it's more about like how you use the weapons to prove the point i see i, I get know. it i'm probably pulling a lot of this no no I, I, I get where you're coming from there now this is an organization we're talking about ecw which existed technically from 1992 until 2001 but as you know it and it's kind of main guys it's more likely from like 94 95 to 2001 it was for many points in time the number three promotion in america during wrestling's big boom period and what we know as the attitude era in wwf when stone cold steve austin and vince mcmahon and all the and the rock and a lot of the main kind of characters who've kind of permeated the zeitgeist at the time were around so it was kind of under a lot of people's radar for a lot of time but it's something that i think a lot of people who've been a long time fan have at least some experience with it is known for a number of things one it was the hardcore promotion when i use that word hardcore in wrestling do you know what that means I mean, that means that they use things like weapons mm. and they don't use things like 
air cushions and tables. <laughs> yes. And padded, nice padded flooring. Yeah, or... the only padding on the floor is the inch of dust because they've not fucking cleaned up the bingo <laughs> hall. So yeah, when we use hardcore in wrestling, generally speaking, it means use of weapons. You don't have traditional rules like countouts or disqualifications. And also as well, hardcore can refer to the fan base or an ethos of like, you know, balls to the wall, everything goes out the window. Nothing's off limits, essentially. And that kind of runs against a lot of the kind of traditional things and whatnot that maybe were established in wrestling. It's a company that's known for its figurehead, the uh, executive producer and then eventual owner, which is Paul Heyman, who's someone we've done a whole episode about. Now, saying that you've not listened to our nice warning about the required reading for this podcast, Joe, could you let these very rambunctious rapscallions still listening, maybe in a sentence or two, who is Paul Heyman and how would you describe this man? In a sentence or two. That's mm. going to be tough because he is a complicated man. It's early August. Yeah. He is currently Brock Lesnar's manager, I think. This is third appearance now, technically, on the on the podcast, essentially. Because we talked about him yeah. in our episode about Brock. Yeah. Then he had his own episode. And now ECW. And here's again. And he was featured a bit in Sandman and the oh, Dudleys true. as well. Yeah, that's true. So Paul Heyman, yeah, he, he is currently Brock Lesnar's manager, mm. though how long that will continue, we don't know. And he was a little rapscallion boy who loved wrestling, started his own wrestling publication called The Wrestling Times when he was a teenager, used the fact that it sounded like a legit publication to score interviews. Yeah. And connections, connections, yeah, with other wrestling media entities. He managed to wangle his way into a few important meetings within certain promotions, got involved in like writing circles and stuff yeah. like that, and then became a, a manager. Yeah, became a manager. But he is a really super charismatic and super sleazy. Oh, yeah. Those are two like, words. older brother figure. So I've been thinking a lot about this recently because we've obviously done our episode on Vince McMahon. Yeah. And we've not done an episode on WCW, but we have touched into a couple of bits to here do with there, that. Yeah. And we've got TNA. We kind of covered a bit as well here and there. And I keep thinking about this kind of like familial relationships. Like Vince has always talked about being a father figure. Like to a worrying degree. Yeah, by literally every... <laughs> male wrestler with like, father issues with father issues like, yeah <laughs> Vince was my dad and I kind of think of Paul Heyman as as the the cool older brother who mm. is involved in a lot of shady shit that you kind of you like you have an idea about it but you don't really want to know too much so you just you kind of turn a bit of a blind eye and you just accept the fact that he's the cool older brother who just he gets things done mm. he, he knows things yeah it's probably best not to ask too many questions about that <laughs> So, I mean, like, ECW, is that something that you'd heard a lot of, really, before we've kind of settled down here? Because I know it's popped up in a few episodes, but is it something that you've heard fans talking about or mentioned much? All the time. It's definitely the company outside of WWE that I've heard most about. Wow. Because I think it was a huge part of wrestling back in when maybe you were growing up, was this Mm. big rivalry between all the different companies, WCW, WWE, and ECW. So I think maybe that's why I've heard more about ECW. Okay. And a lot of big wrestlers from WWE have been in ECW. That's true, yeah. A a number of our episodes we've had to kind of start off by talking a little bit about maybe someone being in ECW or whatnot. And 
I mean, ECW, I was going to start off by trying to say what it actually is or what it made itself out to stand for. And Paul Heyman said that ECW, it was counterculture. It was anti-establishment. And it was up in your face. And it was essentially a renegade promotion in many senses that kind of thrived by being the smaller, little, rambunctious kind of promotion where... It was referred to as being like the Island of Misfit Toys, where wrestlers who were deemed to be maybe too dangerous or had a bad attitude or didn't have the right look, and they all came to ECW, and it was known for for one thing primarily, which was it was where the violent wrestling happened. And what like, a rep. <laughs> but I, I've mentioned this before in our Salmon episode, you know, ECW was something which... I heard about it through my brother's friends who would have maybe done a bit of tape trading back in the day. And I was like, going, wow, I love Stone Cold and the WWF. And they'd be like, yeah, well, here's real wrestling. And they give you this kind of tape and you put it in into your VCR. And all of a sudden this bright red light would appear. And, be and you'd see, like, I honestly, it's probably the most violent stuff I saw from a young age. And I saw Predator when I was three years old. Mm. So it, it was quite forming for me in that sense so for a lot of people who watch wrestling during that kind of time they were at least aware that ecw was this kind of promotion that either a they weren't allowed to watch or b that they shouldn't watch i have a question about that yeah because it seems a lot of people watched ecw when they were quite young yes i mean i would have first watched it when i was nine or ten right so (laughs) which is so fucked up yeah when i was (laughs) When I was young, my dad would forget to turn the TV off and he'd fall asleep in front of it. And then I'd end up watching really bad movies that I was probably too young to see. Okay. And I remember sitting in bed once, my dad had left the TV on and Total Recall was playing. Oh, Joe, yeah. And the scene where they get trapped in the space vacuum or whatever and all their eyes start to bulge and explode and stuff. (laughs) And I was so scared. I hid under the blanket and it seemed to go on for like an eternity. And I couldn't even go and turn it off because that meant I'd have to look at the screen and see Arnold Schwarzenegger's terrifying bulging (laughs) eyes. And I was about nine or ten when I saw that. And... Afterwards, I told my mum, and she was furious at my dad and was like, you're never leaving the TV on around Joanna again. How could you? And I had nightmares for ages. Oh, man. How can you watch real, actual men cut each other open and set each other on fire? Like, actual for real, not Mm. silly claymation exploding eyeballs in space. And not have nightmares. That's, like... I think about this a lot because, like, you know, if you ever listen to Cinema Swirl, you can hear the story about how Kevin got terrified and had a nightmare after seeing aliens and pissed himself in a closet. You know, and I was around the same age. It's probably what I first saw, like, wrestling for the first time. But I really think it was this, Joe. It was, like, I started watching wrestling during the heights of the Attitude Era. My favorite wrestlers were, you know, Mankind and Stone Cold Steve Austin and Kane. And they were doing things like walloping each other with chairs Blood was being used fairly liberally. People were being set on fire. People going through tables, being thrown off very tall objects and structures. And I think what it was was that WWF had this very glossy, just family-friendly enough, but very violent product. 
that when I saw ECW, it was just switched up from eight to ten. You oh, know, it's a gateway drug. Very it's much the so. Cannabis of the <laughs> of the drug world. And all of a sudden, ECW is like, yeah, you got them right. Enjoy this methamphetamine. It's like honestly, it's what it was because then I was seeing like, yeah, I saw people go through tables, big deal. But now I saw someone go through a flaming table. It's kind of like, oh, okay. You know, I had seen, for instance, you know, women pushing each other around a little bit and getting in catfights, and now they were like stripping each other down and like, you know, rolling around while the announcer went, catfight, catfight. You know, I had seen people fall off the hell in the cell, so it made no difference to me when I saw maybe New Jack jump off of a balcony or someone fall off a scaffolding or something. It was just like what I saw now and then in WWF. But I would watch an hour of ECW on TNN and I would see, like, all of that squished into one. And, like, as a kid, it just blew my mind. It was just, like, raw sugar, essentially, you know, sucking it dry. And as a result, because I saw it a little bit as a kid, I saw a few tapes, you know, watched a bit of it on TV when I know I shouldn't have been. And that was an element of it as well, knowing that you shouldn't be watching it. So do you think you'd have enjoyed it if you'd been allowed to watch it? I don't know, because... The reason why I think I became a bigger fan later on is like maybe 2004, 2005, where the documentary that we're going to talk about came out. And that's when DVDs started being marketed with ECW content on them. Straight away, this part of my brain was like, oh, remember that thing that you loved as a kid and you could only get a little bit of and now you can get all of it and more of it. That was like a huge, huge thing. It was like very much like I had been prepped to be this consumer. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> in a few years' time, because I only knew bits and pieces here and there, and I wanted to see it all. And kind of, ECW, I think, is one of those things that the more of it you see, the less special it becomes in a weird way. Yeah. And a lot of us who became ECW t-shirt wearing, chanting ECW chants, even though we were nine when the promotion was in its heyday at, you know, shows in 2008 and nine, I think it was because that, yeah, it was like this cool little thing we saw a bit of, and now it was being brought back for us. And the reality was, it was to sell maybe DVDs and mm. t-shirts and stuff. And we bought a lot of them. We got a lot of tweets and Facebook posts from people, I think, in a similar vein who watched ECW kind of sneaking downstairs. Yeah. It know. seems to be a lot of it was because it was not allowed for children, that children wanted to watch it. Yeah, it very much is. If we're going to compare ECW to a board game, WWE is Monopoly, ECW is Don't Wake Dad. Because mm. <laughs> you got to sneak down and you got to watch some of it. Like. Now, real question. Do yeah. you ever think that seeing all that violence and like some of it is quite cruel, mm. and especially towards the women. Oh, yeah. Do you ever think about how it desensitized or traumatized you in any way like that's such a young impressionable age yeah i mean it did kind of i mean i also went to a catholic all boys boarding school which i think usually will take precedent with anything in terms of like potentially damaging my initial relationships with women and stuff because i didn't know many women for like pretty much most of my teen years you know so that kind of obviously factored into it and yeah as if i was a big fan of the violence towards women and stuff like that, the way women were portrayed necessarily in ECW. He says that having watched ECW primarily when he was pre-pubic. Uh, <laughs> I mean, that is a, a part of it, you know. If I watched it when I was like, fi- if I was 15 or 16 as opposed to 9 or 10, it, yeah, it could be a completely different story. I can't even, like, it's honestly, like, because you're, the way you grew up is obviously very alien to me anyway because of the whole Catholic boarding school <laughs> upbringing that's about as far away from my own 
experiences I can get. Yeah, Vincent de Paul and Paul Heyman raised me. <laughs> but like, if your only experience of women is them being attacked, yeah. I mean, I don't, I didn't, I haven't even seen any of the women's. I don't know if there are women's matches in ECW. We've not covered any for this. There wasn't any in the the documentary. <laughs> the docu- I mean, we might as well talk about it. All I know is people. Room. All I know is people sending in tweets saying Joe is going to hate what happened with okay, the women. Yeah. The women in ECW fell into very few categories. They're either a someone like say Francine or Sunny who was. A woman who was positioned as being like a top level manager or valet for like the top, one of the top guys. Like Francine was always with Shane Douglas or she was with the Pitbulls. She was always with, or just incredible. She was always with like either the champion or the, the heir to the throne. As like a valet role. Mm, like, well, Shane Douglas is his, like, a lot of the characters, the whole gimmick was like, I'm, you know, I'm the top guy. And the reason I'm the top guy is because I've got the belt and I've got Francine. She's the queen bee. She's the head cheerleader. It's like she's, she's, Put as being this like powerful woman who is still in many ways kind of like a trophy. So what was her role? I don't understand. She was like a... A trophy. You know, she was kind of in ways a trophy, but you know, she would interfere in matches and help the bad guy win. It was very much like the the trope of women in wrestling. You're sexy and you're evil and you're, you know, you're not to be trifled with, but you get trifled with all the time, you know, right. kind of existing like that. Then there will be women, for instance, like uh, Don Marie, whose character was very much like, don't ask me, I'm just a girl. <laughs> and it would all be like ditzy jokes. And, you know, when it came down to it, all of these women when they were involved, it would usually be, there was always the spot then where Francine would come into the ring and take off her high heels. And then Don Marie would come in and take off her high heels and they would be dressed, you know, you know, even by attitude era standards, they'd be dressed in very scantily clad and they just roll around and the crowd would go, and just make, you know, loads of, of guttural noises. This is a bit of a tangent question, yeah, but it's been playing on my mind. Okay. Do you think and I can't believe I'm asking this, and this oh, might not be something out. that you can answer. It might be that we have to get audience participation here. <laughs> okay. But considering the number of wrestling matches for women that were literally just for the purposes of is something to jerk off to, lads. Yeah. Do you think there was much masturbation going on in the actual audiences? What you reckon, like a Charlie's Angels full? I mean, yeah. the Charlie's Angels full throttle uh, conundrum, as it has been coined on on Cinema Swirl, where everyone goes to a public place to watch something titillating and realizing they can't all masturbate at once. <laughs> Unless there's one guy going, "Come on, guys, they can't send us all to jail." Oh, God. <laughs> but wouldn't surprise me. I will say, to correct you there, you're making out like these women were having matches. They weren't. It wasn't even like WWE where it's like, Stacey Keebler is going to wrestle Tori Wilson in a vat full of eggnog. It's not. It's like literally the two men are going to fight and their two women are going to come in and take each other's clothes off and roll around a little bit. Like The women didn't even have the pretense of a match often. You know what? I think I actually prefer that. Yeah? Like, I'd rather if you're going to be a sexist, gross piece of shit yeah, I'd yeah. rather you just be upfront about that yeah. okay because you know there's nothing actually wrong about titillation you know within the context of itself I will tell you something Joe unlike the WWF ECW definitely is not guilty of putting on airs about its treatment of women now there was a few exceptions to that Jazz an amazing African American women's wrestler who 
her whole gimmick was she was the only actual proper trained wrestler in ECW and she wrestled the men a lot of the time. She like, you know, the women weren't at her level, so she would wrestle the men and that was kind of a, a cool little story that they did. But the real reality of it, like, is you know the Bada Bing Club from Sopranos? Yes. As in the the, the strip club that's oh, right. okay. and all that. Yeah, yeah. It, it's the strip club based in the Sopranos. Well that's a real club mm. in New Jersey and Heyman had connections there and he literally would go there and have a night out with the boys or whatever and then they would hire a couple of the the ladies there and be like right if you want to come down to ECW we can get you a few shows and people like Electra and found their way being onto high enough profile positions in ECW with no wrestling training starting off primarily like they were strippers that Paul had hired on nights out and stuff like that you see now that's interesting because in a way, I kind of like that because, you know, that was their profession. They yeah. were a professional stripper. So their whole job is to titillate <laughs> yeah. and take their clothes off. And don't don't get me wrong, Joe. They were masters in their fields. Yeah. The, the crowd loved them. And that does take skill. Like, genuinely, it really does. I can't. This is great. I love this. The pro, this is the feminist stance on, on, like, on ECW. I like I'd it. much rather, if you're going to hire women to take their clothes off and do and be titillating... Yeah, hire experts. Get people who who enjoy doing that and find that empowering. Like that's there's nothing bad about that. I mean, there were women who came through there, like Lita came through there, and Jazz, who went on to be you know have actual careers in companies where women's wrestling was an actual part of the, the experience. And you know, people like Don Marie, who were brought in originally just as a valet, but then she went on to have a career in you know WWE afterwards as a wrestler. Like you know, even though she was doing a lot of the, the titillation stuff still. So yeah, it's just. They don't mention on this documentary at all no, about it. They don't even really mention that women exist, really. <laughs> but I will say another thing as well. It's not just the titillation of kind of the women will come in and they'll like have a little sexy time or whatever. The violence towards women. I mean, we had a big chat about it in our Dudley Boys episode about, you know, their whole thing about putting women through tables. They put women through tables in, you know, in ECW, but not as a heel move. Like Tommy Dreamer would pile drive a woman and get a big pop. Rhino, his whole gimmick was that he would just destroy women. He he gorged Sandman's wife through a table. Then he he piled over off the ring apron through two tables. Like they would beat the shit out of these women for okay, lack of a that, better term. That is weird. Francine, she was with the Pitbulls. They did a top rope diving powerbomb to her while she was in a leather bikini. And the response to the announcer, Joey Styles, was, "Oh, what the hell, ECW." That was the woman's experience at ECW. If you weren't right. there grinding up or, you know, kind of playing a ditzy character or being a sexual object, you were getting the shit beat out of you. In terms of using violence towards women in a storyline, I mean, I'm kind of of the viewpoint, I think, I don't want to rule it out entirely, that I think you can have a, a man at a, you know, do something to a woman on, on screen or a woman do something to a man to further a story. I think... WWE could be no exception to a lot of TV shows in doing that. It's all in the handling of it. Mm. Am I confident they could do it? Well, no. But, you know, I'm not saying no one could. But in ECW, if a woman got their, got their hands put on by a man, it was a big, like, yes, here we fucking go. And really, like, like oh, the, the man is really cool and good. For oh, doing yeah. Like Tommy Dreamer, when he, he pile drove Beulah McGillicuddy, who went on to become his wife. She was a former Playboy Playmates, who he pile drove in a way where her skirt fell down so you could see her underwear. And then afterwards, people started chanting, he's hardcore. Like, that is 
It was part of the chutzpah and the balls and the bravado of ECW. That's terrifying. It is. And that is, that's a large part of the 18 to 34 male demographic, how they were pitched to in the late 90s. That's what's so scary. It's eight year old boys. Oh, yeah, that's right. They're saying they're rated all right for 18 to 35, but I I mean, I would see shit like that, like, you know. But yeah, so you, obviously, as you said, you and you grew up in a boarding school. I had limited access. I would say access to women, but like I know, had binders were, full. What are you talking about? There were limited women in the vicinity. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> As I'm sure is the case for a lot of you know men who grew up in boarding schools or or similar situations. Did you ever think that it was damaging at all, or did you ever think it had changed the way you you thought about things? I think you underestimate what a massive prude I was as a child, like, because I was, I was a massive prude, like, uh, I was very much kind of uh, an upbringing and whatnot, that when you saw something like that, we didn't talk about it, we turned it off, and how dare you, and that's that, like, so I knew it was wrong, I did know it was wrong, and I knew that not just the violence, I knew that that you know, two women coming into the ring to fight each other, and then rolling around and making out instead. You Wait, know? they make out? Oh yeah, shit like that happened all the goddamn time. Like they make out, but they can't do a fucking proper lesbian angle. Oh my god! <laughs> so like, yeah, I mean, I knew it was wrong. Yeah, I didn't know why it was wrong. I knew it was meant to be wrong, and I knew like it wasn't like as if I I. I thought it was awesome or anything. So it's I a knew. generalized Catholic guilt. Yeah, it was. Yeah, sort of. sorry guys, the Catholic guilt blanket defense has yeah. come in again. But that honestly was it. I Ooh, knew it was wrong. Oh, you've got off this time, Kevin Mann. When this DVD came out that we were watching, they were selling it in the wrestling shop in Dublin, and I went in. I was excited to buy it, and then the the two lads in the shop were watching it, and the other lads were like, "Oh look, check out this bit here." And it was literally like when two of the women like started like you know taking each other's clothes off and rolling around. And I left the shop until it was over, <laughs> and then I came back in later, and then I bought i nipped into asher to buy some green day badges and then i came around the corner to buy the dvd that's really interesting but you did still <laughs> buy it yeah 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 because there was enough about ecw that i loved and there was so much about ecw that i loved and still love if i'm really really honest because i remember one of my earliest exposures to ecw and uh, we've read this together mcfoley's book and i read mcfoley's book you know as a kid not really understand it later on i read reread it a few times as a teen and being like well, he's talking about ECW here, and he's saying he's there, Stone Cold Steve Austin's there, Raven's there, Sabu, all these like names that I knew of and I loved. It's like, but they're all together at once. Because <laughs> when I watched ECW, it would have been after they got their TV deal, when everyone who was anyone had already left uh, the company. Yeah, they were all dispersed. Yeah, I, I grew up on a healthy diet of kid cash and easy money. I didn't know, Aww. like, you know, about the the big big names that were there. I never got to see. Cactus Jack in ECW. Because that would have been sort of 1995 time. Yeah, way, way earlier. Yeah, Yeah. that was before I even watched any wrestling at all. And I wouldn't have even been on TV in the UK. So for me, it was like, it was must have. I had to see this. I had to learn about this company. So that's almost then like, like you have like a little collector's manual of wrestlers and you get to learn all their (laughs) backstories. You're like, oh my God, the prequel that's available in this special Pretty show. Pretty much, I yeah. I can find out Stone Cold Steve Austin's origin story. And, like, I didn't know why the company... It said it was the rise and fall of ECW. And I didn't know why the company got popular and why the company stopped being popular because I would have been very much of the viewpoint in 2004 when this documentary came out, which was, this is objectively the best wrestling in the world and why isn't this what is on TV now? Like, I, I couldn't understand... Because what I was watching on TV at the moment was post-Attitude Era, pre-PG, trash. trash. And I was like, I don't understand. Why are we not watching, like, Sandman and Sabu (laughs) in the stairway to hell at WrestleMania? I couldn't understand. And I thought this DVD 
would explain it. It's a DVD that WWE produced kind of on a bit of a whim. They owned the ECW copyright after picking it up for a song in a bankruptcy court. This is after they had already used the ECW copyright without actually owning it and using the excuse in bankruptcy court. It was like when a couch is left out on the sidewalk and you just come and and take it. So they put this documentary out there just to kind of tell the story because a lot of the people who were with the company were now with WWE. And it was, at the time, like one of the most successful DVDs they had ever done. And it precipitated a comeback show and a reunion and eventually getting brought back as a third brand. But that's a whole separate discussion. We're not talking about revivals really here. We are talking about... Origin stories. Origin stories. But I will bring in the revivals just for one little moment. Because when I wanted to start us off and chat about ECW, I thought I need to find like a favourite ECW match. Something that I thought really epitomised... Everything about ECW, from the unassuming characters, to the crowd, to the actual you know, physicality of it, but not just the weapons, also the work rate and all that. So, on the advice of all of our lovely followers on Twitter and Facebook, I decided to show Joe what I would have used to get you into wrestling in 2010, which is Masato Tanaka versus Mike Awesome from ECW One Night Stand 2005. I was joking about this the other day, and Adam from the Attitude Era podcast, who's been on a previous episode here, was like, you know when you and I first met, the first thing you did was show me this match. (laughs) So literally accurate. It is a shocking degree of accuracy. Now, it's a match which I think is maybe in the hindsight of knowing about shots to the head and whatnot being bad for everyone's general health. It's maybe not aged particularly well. But <laughs> You're as... looking so embarrassed. I am. I am. Crossing your legs and arms, ah. looking at the floor. With these matches, I just wanted to show Joe to get a sense. We only watched a couple of matches just to kind of show different elements of ECW. You had seen some ECW matches before with Dudleys and Sandman and whatnot. And my absolute favourite ECW match, which was John Cena versus Rob Van Dam. Which was from the the reunion show the year after this. But Tanaka and Awesome, in terms of a hard-hitting match, what were your thoughts on that one? I mean, I was impressed at the beginning because there was a suicide dive in the first five seconds. Which is the Seth Rollins special, as we like to call it. (laughs) So, I mean, yeah, it was off to a good start. I think I remember correctly, there was someone going through a table within the first minute as well. Yeah, you made us rewind to actually get the time. It was within 90 seconds, I believe, that a table (laughs) had been brought out and used. And then, after kind of a lot of big top spots, as I'm calling them... I got a bit a bit tired of it because there's a lot that happens in this match and there's like very little break. It's like 15 minutes of breakneck non-stop action. Yeah. And, and I use the word breakneck not just to refer to the speed but in terms of these men try to break each other's neck it feels. Yeah, there were huge numbers of tables being broken through people being thrown over the rope to the outside <laughs> through a table. And after a while it kind of just got a bit bit stale to the point where I suddenly realised why people take issue with the Young Bucks. Ah. I was like, oh, so this is what it feels like to kind of feel like there's just too many big spots and not enough story. So with the Young Bucks, I remember you always like it though because they're always pulling out flips. So when it's a a top spot that just involves like physicality maybe and something dangerous and scary. Yeah, and it was all kind of the same... I know that's not fair. It's not really all the same moves because they did do some genuinely really impressive wrestling in this. But I 
I just don't find watching people go through tables, that's not that fun for me. Like, once per match is enough and then I'm done. Honestly, for probably around five or six years, my favourite moment in all of wrestling was when Mike Awesome gets a chair. And I know I know so much about the fucking concussions and, and head trauma and all that now. I've read up a lot on it and it's it's something that's very near and dear to my heart. But I can't shake that this one of my favourite moments for wrestling for many years was when Mike Awesome with, you know, big six foot eight dude swings a chair as hard as he could on top of Masato Tanaka and literally crumples him to the ground and he just gets up and goes and then he gets hit again in the head with a chair oh my god I still I'm I'm hitting get away goosebumps go away stop it we've got to train that out of you (laughs) I feel wrong I'm dirty (laughs) this is the great thing the most ECW thing about this is like while we're watching this and there's like tables and chairs and headshots on commentary, Joey Styles is like, let me tell you about this Judas Mike Awesome. He should kill himself with the suicide dive. He sold us out, us and all of our families. He took the payoff. He's a piece of shit, and I want him to kill himself. Now, he did actually commit suicide many years later. Oh, my God. And Joey Styles has to live with that, as well as global warming being an absolute truth. Boom, take that, Joey Styles, your right-wing fucking weirdo. Were you... Impressed by the match overall? Not it- really. I mean, I was at the beginning, and then it just the pacing was not my thing. It was mm. too much going on, too many of the same kind of big moves. Like I said, I, I'm not into people being put through tables. Honestly, I'd rather watch someone build a table than see someone <laughs> put through it, and that's the God's honest truth. <laughs> I mean, for me though, like, if we could put it into time perspective, this would have come the summer after the WrestleMania where we got. Brock Lesnar versus Goldberg yeah. uh, with Austin's the referee. So for me, I was like, whoa, look, these guys are working so hard. They're doing so much. They're really earning their money here. I mean, yeah, and they are. They really, really are. And I would never say to anyone who enjoys this match, I say to you yeah. in front of me, yeah. you know, it's not bad to enjoy this. It's, it's just not right, my yeah. thing. It's, I think because I can't, I can't see it within the context of what wrestling was like at that time because I mm. haven't lived through that. All I can compare it to is what I watch now. And have you seen NXT <laughs> recently? Like seriously? Have you seen Carrie Zane's hat? It's got the biggest <laughs> fucking feather. Find a bigger feather in wrestling. Shayna Baszler choked Nikki Cross out, and Nikki Cross started like smiling. <laughs> And that is the shit I live for, okay? What I think is very noticeable from a lot of the tweets that we got, and we'll get into the documentary now here in a second, is a lot of people think you can't... You're, like, try as you might, the position you're in trying to begin your journey and learn about ECW in 2018, you can't. Because ECW is... ECW was a reflection of the times. Unless you're in those times... And you weren't aware of what it was fighting against and rallying against, then it's like, what? What is this thing? Then I think that's correct. Mm. Um, I mean, I can I can get an idea of what it would have been like because I was a teenager, not that far off around that time. You know, yeah. I lived through that time. I I remember the culture. You remember um, being an edgy teen, like of course. <laughs> but yeah, I think it's true. I think unless you have actually been watching it at that time, and I think even goes so far as to say, as if you haven't been to one of the shows, you can't mm. really get an idea of what it was like like there was a friend of a friend that I had my wrestle friend when I was in Galway a friend of his he was in New York City when ECW happened to be doing a house show randomly a non-televised show they did a tag tournament it was like 2001 one of the last shows they did and he just happened to go along to it and like even though we, we all were all mad wrestling nerds in that group 
he was put on this pedestal as mm. being like he's been to the mountaintop. Yeah, he's he's seen he's seen the promised land. It's like when you all break up over summer and you come back and one of you's like gone through puberty and kissed, <laughs> kissed a girl for the first time. And it's like whoa, whoa, whoa! Like he's one of us, but he's like you know he's oh. We need to wow. check with him before we do anything. I'm gonna pop on this WCCW DVD. You want to check if it's, it's okay with yeah, him it's okay. first? Yeah, like, I don't want to I don't want to be doing anything wrong and uncool here, like you know. <laughs> Could you give that match a rating? I mean, I know we're just zipping through some of them, but uh, for your I, reaction? I gave it a generous three stars out of five, which I I think is possibly too generous. I didn't really enjoy it that much, to be honest. But I, like, it's undeniably impressive. Are one of those stars for my sense of self-worth? Probably. Yeah. For the sake of our relationship, I don't want, don't want Kevin to feel I resent him. <laughs> he didn't literally come up to me like, we're going to watch my favourite ever match for ECW. I mean, I will say... When I was watching it, it's as if I watched it if this time for the, the 37th time. Not I can keep a track or anything. Right. But Not like you got goosebumps even still. Shut up. It's cold today in August. Uh, <laughs> but as I was watching it, it was, I was palpably aware. Like, I didn't think you'd love it. Oh, really? No, I was kind of like, I'm pretty sure like that the one of the things Joe will like most about this is that they put down mats in the Hammerstein ballroom <laughs> you know <laughs> the WWE like line there that they're towing it's so. funny because when you first mentioned the match to me and how excited you are I, I feel that you didn't really understand that no. I wouldn't like it at first and then it kind of it dawned on it me it dawned on you yeah quite quickly like when, when we were rewinding to see if it was within 90 seconds that table broke I was like yeah I've never had to rewind this point in the match we usually rewind <laughs> to see Masato Tanaka's power scream that he does <laughs> so we're going to get stuck into the rise and fall of ECW the documentary made by WWE in the year 2004 now this is obviously a story which is one a WWE kind of telling of events so always have a massive asterisk in the back pocket for that one also as well you are talking with Paul Heyman who if you've not listened to our Paul Heyman episode is fucking fabulous at not quite lying but definitely not telling the truth. Oh, yeah. Serious master. There's a lot of names, big, big, important names with uh, ECW, namely Terry Funk, Raven, Shane Douglas, the Pitbulls, Francine, all of these names, and Todd Gordon, who don't get interviewed here, who are interviewed on Forever Hardcore, which is a documentary that was made at the same time to kind of give the other side of the story. They go into a lot more of the dirt there and some of the Aww. stuff that they don't cover here. Unfortunately, my physical media that I have of it has perished within the last 14 years. And this is why DVDs are bunk. Uh, well, Tomorrow's World told me back in 1986 that I would be able to smear raspberry jam on them and they would be okay. Oh my God. And I didn't even do that and it still is bunk. So what the fuck, guys? <laughs> But if you happen to find a copy of it, I will wholeheartedly recommend Forever Hardcore as another look at it. I will say, though, Joe and I have read a lot of uh, you know chapters from wrestlers' books where they have talked about ECW, and I popped on a few shoot interviews, and we're going to go into more detail on some of the maybe legality situations that WWE... You know, you bought everything when you bought the company, guys, but I get you don't want to talk about maybe some of the, the, the lawsuits and whatnot that was going on. So we start things off talking about what ECW meant to a lot of people, and everyone who's in this documentary is talking about ECW uses usually the words fun or exhilarating. Like, people seem genuinely thrilled to have been in that company who yeah. were talking about it. Yeah. Well, I mean, I can see why, because it was so new and unique at that time when wrestling was more along the lines of our episode on silly gimmicks mm. 
I mean, I can't remember any off the top of my head, but I remember they were absolutely ridiculous. One of them was a trash collector. Hey, <laughs> you leave Duke Drozzy out of this. <laughs> so, yeah, ECW was originally Eastern Championship Wrestling, which was just one of many, many little tiny indie promotions floating around in the NWA, which is the National Wrestling Alliance, which you may remember from our first episode or episode about Vince McMahon. We're talking about the old territories. So this is after Vince would have bought up all the territories that were worth snot. This is like a skeleton of its former self. The NWA is just a collection of small indie promotions and a belt that has a long lineage. So Todd Gordon had a falling out with his booker at the time, who was a guy named Hot Stuff Eddie Gilbert. And Todd Gordon, because he had a falling out with his booker, reached out to Paul Heyman, who was left WCW and was at a loose end, to help him book his show at the ECW Arena. The ECW Arena is a bingo hall. Just want to get that one pointed out. It's a out. very cool bingo hall. But one thing I just want to point out is the uh, the monkey paw. <laughs> the monkey paw? Yeah, when Todd Gordon asked Paul Heyman to, to help me out with this cool new show I'm doing, the, the single finger on the monkey paw <laughs> curls. Wait, who's, who's cursed here? Todd Gordon? Todd Gordon's oh. cursed. Todd Gordon doesn't get much of a, a look in, in this. We get to hear about his exit from ECW. But, I mean, <laughs> he seemed like a guy who got not really much out of this arrangement. Yeah. Todd Gordon did own the original ECW. Not that you'd know it from, like, <laughs> any of the documentary that we watched. We were, like, halfway through. I'm like, yeah. Barely he, mentioned. He sold it to Paul in 1995. And you were like, wait, what? He owned it? Who's this sad-looking, tired man who's... Always in the background. Todd Gordon, who is definitely rocking the look of a man in the early 90s who has mortgaged his house twice to start ECW and keep it going. Ah! He sold it to Paul Heyman eventually because Heyman, who was the creative director and the executive producer, was, was basically any money we make, we're going to use it to grow bigger shows, more venues, you know, more stuff, merchandise, da da da. And Todd ended up selling the company to him. I mean, one version of events, at least, was because it wasn't financially viable for him. He, you know, he had four kids. He didn't really. <laughs> Heyman referred to ECW being to WWF in this time period where we're like the, the early 90s, really, as like what Nirvana was to Poison, essentially. Yeah, there's a great quote here. He says, I felt that wrestling as an industry needed to change in the same way that music had changed. We needed wrestling's version of Nirvana. Yeah, because if you think about it, you had the early hair metal bands in the late 80s or the mid and late 80s who you know, took the world by storm, sold out arenas. You could say Hulk Hogan, The Ultimate Warrior, Randy Savage, Ric Flair, the kind of the big bombastic names of the 80s. Now it's the mid-90s. Those guys are still kind of doing that act, albeit to maybe a smaller audience. And anything that's coming along, like, I don't know, fucking Flock of Seagulls that's trying to do the same thing is kind of struggling a bit. So you need a massive, massive change. Mm -hmm. And yeah, you're right. This time period is very much the era of Duke the Dumpster Drozzy, of Friar Ferguson, of T.L. Hopper, the wrestling plumber. <laughs> <laughs> So we got to see, like, Heyman straight away. I mean, just the concept from knowing what a creative guy that Heyman was. Like, him in charge of a wrestling company. That's that's gold, right? Surely. He's going to have the greatest characters, the greatest stories. That's going to be the fucking shit, right? I don't know. We've done too many episodes at this point for me to think that about 
anyone, <laughs> no matter how creative hints Russo. <laughs> because it takes more than creativity to run a wrestling company. You have to yeah. be a business person. There are so many different skills you need. And it's really interesting that the more episodes we do like this, the kind of the bigger picture I'm getting. Because I look at Vince McMahon, I think, like, there's a guy who is, you know, he's successfully run a business mm. and a company. And he's he's done, you know, for all his faults, he's done it actually really well. He's a good leader. He understands the type of relationship you need with your employees, that kind of like mentorship. He knows how to manipulate. He knows how to manipulate, which I'm not saying that's a good thing, but, but it's it a helpful helps, thing for yeah. a business for sure. <laughs> and that's not just in wrestling as well, folks. Yeah, I mean yeah. that's true. And then you've got people like, you know, Vince Russo who, you know, although he didn't own a company, he has, you know, had a major role in running a few mm. a very creative man some could argue but well, that- i think you're right it takes more than just that creativity yeah. and vince mcmahon's always surrounded himself by creative people yeah and also business people vince i think has always understood the importance of yeah surrounding people who are better at things than you are mm. and even though he struggles with delegation i think he at least appreciates that it's necessary Paul Heyman, on the other hand, I think he he thinks that he's so good at everything, and he's so good at so many things. I don't, almost don't even blame him for thinking this, but that he thinks he's so good at everything that mm. he should do it all. It's so weird because like no one surely, if you sat down Paul Heyman and went payroll, huh, or fucking checks or endorsement deals, or you know, he wouldn't be like, I am the ma- I am the man. I will do this accounting. I will do this bookkeeping. He, surely he wouldn't think he's that good, though. Maybe to save money, though. He'd think God. he's good enough. And that's all you need, right? Someone yeah. who's good enough. It's this whole story that we're going to be telling here. It's That's the weird thing about it, is that you've got at the helm someone who is notoriously secretive, notoriously has a loose association with the truth at best, mm. And I wonder as well, when you talk about a lot of the kind of abnormalities of people's pay and stuff like that, if how many times where there was money, but he wouldn't make out there was money, so he could use that money to maybe have a show that he'd promised someone already when there was no money, that there's a big show coming up. You know, I kind of feel like he was maybe trying to stop all the leaks all the time. Yes. Well, then he thought that he could do it, but he didn't want to, he didn't trust anyone to expose the web of lies that he had let up. And I think with people like Paul Heyman, who was so... They're so good at lying. I honestly think he lied to himself as well. I think that he mm. thought genuinely he had complete control and yeah. that everything was fine. And even if it wasn't fine right now, it will be fine tomorrow. Yeah. There's a couple of moments in the documentary where Paul Heyman speaks incredibly motivationally about, you know, it's not about how the day went today. It's about getting up and doing a great job tomorrow. Oh, man. Sorry. That's so funny that you mention like that speech and straight away as soon as you mentioned that I remembered there was a thing they did when Heyman came back in like 2013 or 14 with with uh, Lesnar they did a segment where Vince was going to fire him in the ring and he's like he's like come on you have to admit that you're a liar and he's like yes I am a liar I have lied every day of my life and I have lied and I have lied and I have sworn on my mother's life and my children he's like he's just tears in his eyes like I've sworn on my children's lies to get from today to tomorrow because if I can get to tomorrow today doesn't matter and, yeah. and I have lied to do that so 
Yeah, that is when I think he maybe reached into a bit of reality. I think it's like one of those things, you know, in wrestling, they think a good heel always has to think he's right. Yeah. I think he thinks a good businessman has to always think Absolutely. he's right. The, the quote he says, now he says this at the end of the documentary is a kind of real uplifting moment. And I remember when we saw this, we were like, both like, wow, that's, those are pretty amazing words to live by if you don't think too carefully about who's saying them and the context in which he's saying it because if you do think that you realise that they're cursed words <laughs> and then all of a sudden another monkey finger monkey four, yeah. <laughs> the quote is you cannot achieve success without the risk of failure I learned a long time ago you cannot achieve success if you fear failure if you're not afraid to fail man you have a chance to succeed but you're never going to get there unless you risk it all the way I literally replaced the word failure with lying and fail with lie. And it's like pretty much the Heyman credos here. Yeah. So we got introduced to some of the early names and stars that came to ECW. Now, what's very strange, you can watch all of ECW on the network, but if you go back to 1993 and early Eastern Championship Wrestling, you're seeing the likes of Surfing Sandman, which we talked about, but also names like Road Warrior Hawk and Jimmy Superfly Snuka and Don Morocco and like kind of names from the 80s and whatnot that would have been associated with the WWF. So Heyman actually, when he took over, the company was relying, like a lot of indies at the time, on names that had been stars in the 80s who were still kind of floating around a little bit. Like, you know, one of the first ECW champions was Jimmy Superfly Snooker. You know, that's not a name you think of when you think of ECW. No. But he started to bring in veterans who he knew would actually help out and starting to put together acts that were truly unique like the public enemy for instance flyboy rocco rock and johnny grunge who were two of the least coordinated white guys who he could slap a rap gimmick on and come out and do in the dance now did you understand at all the appeal of public enemy from what we saw in the few clips that I, they were shown i think so like it's an ironic self-deprecating, tongue-in-cheek kind of spoof of white guys who take themselves too seriously and mm. think they're rappers. Yeah. Which, I mean, that's still relevant today. It is. But you know one of the reasons they got over so much? When they came out in, like, 1994, whenever it was, the theme song. You know that fucking great yeah, rap? But it's annoying. Still something that day. And everyone would fucking dance along because it's kick-ass music. And that's one thing that Heyman did. It's not talked about in this documentary. And you'll not see it on the network. And it's one of the reasons why you can never enjoy ECW as it was meant to be. Licensed music made ECW the coolest of the fucking cool. Yeah, Paul Heyman really understands the power of a proper good song choice. Like Enter Sandman. Enter Sandman. You know, yeah. yeah. Like that that's the reason that works. Cactus Jack came out to Born to Be Wild. You know, your Tommy Dreamer came out to Alice in Chain wow. Chains. Spy Dudley came out to uh Highway to Hell. Like you had like just fucking balls kick ass fucking music for everyone. And it wasn't just like big old classic hair bands then. I mean like I know a uh, Deep Purple did Shane Douglas's entrance music. He had perfect strangers. But in the later years as well then he'd use like kind of local bands and like Swedish fucking bands and stuff like that to have this real just banging wrestling entrance music. And it's all the type of music that fans of wrestling of ECW would have been listening to anyway. Yeah. And guess what? He never paid a single dime for the license. That's what I was going to ask. You were saying about licenses and I can't imagine him ever doing that legally. He never paid for the licenses. The only time he paid for the licenses was when they went on to national TV. He then hired a couple of groups. There's Harry Slash and the Slash Tones who were like a local band who did the ECW... 
went out. He did. They did their music. They did a few songs for the guys. They had like a cover that Motorhead did of Enter Sandman, and so he licensed cheaper versions and then released a CD. Right. But originally, what he did, and this is from like you know ninety three all the way up to the year two thousand, more or less. He would play the music through the same audio channel as the ambient sound of the crowd. Right. And that actually was enough to get him away from not being sued all those years. What? Because of... This is the thing I tried to explain to Joe about ECW getting sued. Now, for those who don't know, Paul Heyman's dad, what's his job? He's a lawyer. Yeah. In fact, I think he says his parents are both lawyers. Parents are both lawyers, yeah. So, very, very good litigators, let's just say. ECW at any one point was being sued by so many companies that they managed to avoid actually getting taken down by any one thing. You know in The Simpsons where they talk about how Mr. Burns and he goes and he gets his medical and it's like, look, you've got all these viruses here represented by these little cute beanie babies and here's the door into your body. And they're all trying to get in at once and not one can. And then Mr. Burns is like, so I'm immortal. And they're like, no, honestly, one slip up and you will be immortal. <laughs> and Heyman... Instead of the, the door is like ECW's finances and all of the Beanie Babies are all the various grievances from the people who are suing them. And we'll talk about some of those lawsuits later. And not all of them are trying to sue them at once, aren't they? And because they're wrapped up in litigation, it's like, sorry, you want to sue ECW? It's probably like five or six years. Most of the people who were suing ECW, by the time they got around to it, the company no longer existed. Wow. You know? And, you know, there was personal liability. Then there was the company. Heyman sold part of the company to his mother at one point. You know, there was... Everyone kind of got fucked over in the long run, except for Heyman, really, when it came to a lot of these lawsuits. That's incredible. Jesus. So, yeah. I'm not saying that if you play the licensed music through the ambient sound of a crowd, you can play whatever music you want to. I'm saying that Heyman did that and was able to use that to maybe say well, we can't go to trial now until someone figures this out and then it's a few more years later and they don't have to worry about it. Fucking hell. That's, how could you live like that? Like, that's the thing. Like, I have anxiety. <laughs> and I, like, I think of a thousand problems that could happen that will never, ever happen in a million years and they will all run simultaneously in my head at any one moment. If I was actually embroiled with a like, hundred different lawsuits, I would die of stress within yeah. 24 hours. No one involved in the running of that company for the entirety of that company's run could ever at the end of the day go, well, that's all that then, lads. That's, or, that's it now. All taken care of. Enjoy the Finally, weekend. Finally, I can sit back and enjoy the new season of Better Call Saul. <laughs> no, you can't. You've got lawsuits to prepare for. And it's 1995. It doesn't exist yet. <laughs> Neither does the concept of prestige television. You watch Lois and Clark. You watch it. <laughs> Don't dislike it's a great show. Another very important name in ECW at the time, Terry Funk. I love the way this documentary puts all these guys that he he chose mm. as a kind of like an A team montage. Like, <laughs> Paul Heyman's there and he's like, right, I couldn't have started ECW. It was what it was because of the wrestlers that we brought in. Mm. You know, we had the Sandman. We couldn't have we couldn't have had ECW without the Sandman. There's a little cool graphic of the Sandman coming in and smashing a can on his head and it's like boom the Sandman. So like we had to bring in the veteran. He he knew how to help all yeah. the young guys. He understood that there needed to be a future 
in wrestling for him to leave behind. And that was Terry Funk. We got Taz, used to be Tasmania. We brought him in. We made him cool. I, I just really like the, the pacing of it and the fact that it's this whole little story starts from this little group of guys who then it grows into this this big, big thing. Well, you're right. It's like really important that you look at it from that perspective because ECW was it was about its core little group of, of wrestlers or whatever and their strong, unique gimmicks and everyone you're mentioning there. I mean, for me, there's nothing more dramatic than any story you tell where someone like Terry Funk, a kind old veteran, and then there's some mean fucking punk who wants to... Oh, God, like that just makes me straight away, puts me on edge, like, I you know? I would love, like, an HBO or Netflix original series-style show about mm. the the creation of ECW. Yes, absolutely. I just want to see someone play Terry Funk, this kindly nice old man. He, you know, he really should have retired probably 10 years ago. He's broken and old, but I'm here to help. Oh, man, God, it's so freaking emotional because, like, he... Would then like he would find people like that like you know veterans with a story to tell and then he'd go and he'd find someone like Sabu who's like the best kept secret in Japan. This is before the internet where every everyone you know, everyone if you want to go and find out who's going to be a big deal in the next three years in, in in mainstream wrestling, you could find out now just by doing a couple of Google searches. Yeah, you know it's everyone knows now who's up and coming and what's going on in the other countries. Should you so desire, but like when Heyman brought in say Sabu. And Sabu was the first person to use tables in the in the US. And think about that. That's so wild. Tables. That's yeah. a core part of wrestling. <laughs> like if, if someone came to me and said, alternate timeline, Kevin, there is no tables in wrestling. And it's because Sabu was never brought over. Honestly, I don't know if I would have been a wrestling fan. I love tables <laughs> so much and people going through them. Honestly, I really would have struggled to In this alternate timeline, I'm the wrestling expert because I <laughs> don't really like tables anyway. And uh, I bring you into it as a new fan and we do this whole podcast differently. An amazing thing as well that Heyman was doing was finding ways and means to motivate all of the troops. And he'd find someone like a stud like Shane Douglas who had been to WWF, he'd been to WCW, he had not had any success there. And then he literally turns to him and goes, why do you think you've not had success? It's like, because of the old fuckers like Ric Flair and Dusty Rhodes. And go, cool, awesome. Here's a microphone. All of a sudden you got this fucking stud now talking about like how all the old timers are keeping him down. And he built a company out of spite and vitriol and you know, broken dreams. And he he got momentum from that, from having all of these people kind of interact together. It, it meant a lot in 1994 or 5 when you had Shane Douglas talking about this is the real wrestling happening here now because all the old timers are fucking up those other companies. It resonated with hardcore fans. That's the thing about Paul Heyman. He knows how to motivate people. He completely understands. He can talk to you, listen to you, and immediately understand exactly how to get you to do what he wants. Because Mm. with all of these people, he understood what he needed to say to get them to convince themselves that going to ECW was the right choice for them. It's a cult, Joe. Yeah, it is totally a cult. Yeah. Like, he's got Terry Funk, like this guy who, as I said, by all rights should have retired. But Terry Funk understood that there needed to be a future to wrestling. And he understood that he had the ability to give young wrestlers that that talent that he had and he could pass it down. He understood mm. that he could use his place in the wrestling industry to tell incredible stories and get other guys over. So what does Paul do? He goes up to Terry Funk and says... You know, I think uh, I think you can do really well if we put you on as like the the veteran and yeah. Terry Funk's immediately like, yes, of course, this is what is needed. Yeah, and it's kind of there's a fine line between 
what seems like a win-win-win scenario and subtle manipulation. Yeah. But he did a lot of it and he conditioned his audience to get on board. Because when Shane Douglas was out there saying, WCW shit, it's run by fucking idiots. Well, then straight away from the crowd. And like I thought like the other companies were the devil for a period of time because of what the wrestlers at ECW were saying. They're saying that WCW was like, you, Tommy Dreamer said, if you join WCW, you're joining the Taliban, which is 2004. That was some spicy words. Like, whoa. Th- whoa, the Taliban. The ISIS of 2004. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, there was an us versus them mentality that was with the wrestlers, but also it spread to the wrestling fans, the fans of ECW. He didn't want you to watch the WCW show. He didn't want you to spend money on WCW. He wanted you to spend money on his product instead. And it worked. And another thing that they did as well is getting across characters with real-life grievances. And it's something... We we actually talked about this angle a little bit in our Sandman episode. But using real-life events and real-life kind of emotions to try and build up characters. Because, yeah, as you say, he built ECW on spite. He was spited by WCW... They shat on him, and so he did ECW to shit back on them. And get all the other people who've been shat on to yeah. combine their... It's like in Pokemon, but instead of you know, at the end of the movie, all the tears, it's all the shit. All the people want to shit on together came together to just cover... Eric Bischoff is Mewtwo in this scenario. Uh, he gets covered in shit and not tears. I don't think there's an, a, an industry out there where you can find more people who feel like they've been wronged. Yeah, seriously. Like, it is such rich turf. If you want to find people who feel like they've been shit on, yeah, go to any wrestler. And I'm sure they've been wronged by someone at some point. Imagine if someone went on Dragon's Den and it's like, we're all from a bunch of app developer companies and this motherfucking company we all work for, we hate them so much, we're going to destroy them. They're like, yeah, that's not a business, that's spite, I'm out like, you know. <laughs> But it works because he used he used that spite and he fed the spite in everyone he worked with mm. by saying, you know, yeah, it's these other guys. It's these big companies that are, you know, nicking your paychecks. It's these huge old timey wrestlers that can't be bothered to work properly or they want, you know, they're, they're too lazy. They're too greedy. You know, they did a great job as well, even with like when they say Cactus Jack, when he first came in, he worked for WCW. And, you know, he did a, a little promo where he spat on, he was one of the tag team champions. And he's like, I lost the match tonight and I've lost my pride. And this belt means nothing to me now because I don't have my pride. And he spat on the belt. Now, depends on who told him to do that. He said he came up with it himself. But when he spits on that belt and, you know, WCW aren't going to watch the show, lads. But they are going to hear that one of their wrestlers spat on a belt on ECW. And that makes ECW seem like cool, edgy, renegade, I'm not going to clean my room, mom, promotion. And WCW being the curmudgeonial bastards who take the bell soul super seriously and punish their wrestlers for expressing themselves. Everything they did fed into this dynamic, particularly in those early days. Um, I got to see... Finally, the footage of the Singapore caning that happened. You heard about the Singapore cane and why it was used in ECW and how it became Sandman's weapon of choice. Yeah. What did you reckon to seeing young, handsome Tommy Dreamer getting smashed with a Singapore cane? See, I would call that that's excessive violence for a reason. Mm-hmm. That's not excessive violence for no reason. Like that. What's told, the reason? What's the reason? It told there? a story. And the story was that so there was a match and whoever lost the match was caned. Mm-hmm. And within the culture of ECW, which is, you know, it's hardcore, the fans are one of the most important elements of the company and they expect violence. Yeah. And so if you are losing a match, that's obviously already you're on kind of you're on the the 
defensive. So Tommy Dreamer, he's going to be caned. All he has to do is stay down and the caning will stop. But no, if he wants respect in this company, if he wants to, you know, be heralded as a hero, even though he loses every single match he's in, he's got to keep getting up again and yeah. show that he can. That's that's the spirit of ECW. It's It's not about how many times you fall. It's about getting back up again. I remember watching that clip here when I first saw this documentary. And it was the first time ever where I thought you could actually... I thought you could only get emotion like that in an arena with 20,000 people and light bulbs going off. I didn't think you could get, like, goosebumps and emotion in a, in a bingo hall with two lads in sweatpants hitting each other with a stick, which is kind of what it was. But it still is. It's real powerful <laughs> it stuff. Is. It's really powerful. And it always ties into this sort of ongoing... Paul Heyman would never call it this, but it's the brand of ECW. Yeah. Which is, you know, Paul's very ethos of... It's not about how today went. It's about getting up and doing it a better job tomorrow. And if you look at all of the things that happened in ECW and all the decisions that he made, he was never about protecting an individual or, I mean, outside of himself, you could argue, but he was never about protecting, like, oh, he's the top guy or that's the top act, so we have to protect them. It was always about ECW. And that was the first time a company had put its brand itself above the wrestlers. That's why the people chanted... EC dub and no one chanted WWE like you know <laughs> and one thing that definitely didn't fit in with the brand was being part of the National Wrestling Alliance and Eastern Championship Wrestling Paul liked a good surprise and he liked a good swerve and he didn't mind swerving fellow colleagues and businessmen in the wrestling world to achieve those means Eastern Championship Wrestling was doing well and much like back in the heyday of the NWA they met with a committee and decided who's going to be our champion who's going to travel around the little tiny territories that are left as our representative. Well, that clean-cut young man Shane Douglas seems like a good suggestion. He wins a tournament to become the new NWA champion, hells up the belt and says, everyone who's held this belt, they can all kiss my ass. And he cuts a promo about how the NWA died seven years ago and he's not going to hand a torch to a a moribund organisation. The NWA? That's been dead for seven years. (gasps) (laughs) Did this kind of... Many people feel this is like kind of a symbolic awakening or the kind of the moment it became extreme championship wrestling and whatnot. But he didn't tell anyone in the NWA or any of the, the co-workers uh, who worked in the other territories that, hey, we're going to get your belt and fuck it down on the ground and say it's a piece of shit and your company is dead. I mean, where do you stand on that? I think for storytelling, it's great. I love it. I wish more promotions would be less protective of their belts because i think it's a real hindrance it's so it's so strange to me like the fact that the wrestling industry takes a belt a lot more serious than say like you know an allegation of domestic abuse or you know the murder of someone's partner (laughs) but you know i mean we've all got our own priorities yeah exactly yeah we're all gonna live with our own values haven't we (laughs) but the fact that like you know you can spit on a belt and suddenly or like put a belt in the the trash can and suddenly you're blacklisted forever Mm. like they take that shit so serious and it's such a shame because it's a great story it's great for ecw but like if they'd planned it properly they could have told a really great story that would have benefited ecw and the nwa they could have turned that into an angle and then Heyman will make the argument though nwa wouldn't want to do business and like that's that. that's the sad truth and he is right because the wrestling industry takes its own belts far too seriously well, it's the definition of navel gazing by the way yeah where do you wear the belt over your navel 
it's <laughs> but it's funny because it's like it's almost easier for Heyman to throw not tell him and throw it down and go well they would they would never have done business they wouldn't know what we're about than to actually try to do it because it wouldn't seem very cool or extreme if it's like yeah okay let's do some business we'll do an angle with the NWA and ECW we'll but figure why, it out why does anyone else have to know about that at the time yeah. it's not like he needs to tell the audience that's very very true very Come on, very it's true the, the most secretive industry with Paul Heyman the most secretive man <laughs> I'm sure he could have kept it hidden if he wanted to well as a result of that they had to strip Shane of the NWA belt he declared himself the ECW champion and Todd Gordon folded Eastern Championship Wrestling and started Extreme Championship Wrestling and as soon as I'm saying this out loud, it makes me realise this was probably done for tax or bankruptcy reasons <laughs> that it got this new name. This is a whole new company with whole new bondholders and interested parties. None to do. Now that was Eastern Championship Wrestling, mate. Sorry. That's, that's Sorry, all your company. lawsuits are invalid now. You'll have to start all over again. I wonder because one of the lawsuits that would have happened before it became Extreme Championship Wrestling or very around near this time would have been the fire chair. I don't know if you know about the fire chair with Mick Foley as Cactus Jack and Terry Funk. What happened? No, I don't think so. So Cactus Jack was having a feud with Terry Funk and Terry Funk used to use the flaming branding iron as his weapon of choice. A what? A flaming branding iron. A what? Uh, you know what you use to, to brand steer? No, what's... What? All steer? Right. So if you got a cow and you want to make sure that no rustlers or any other... You've, you've played Red Dead, right? Yeah. Yeah, so you have to start when you get the cattle ranch. You want to make sure no one nicks your cow. You get a flaming hot branding iron, and you wait. Is there some part of Red Dead Redemption that I didn't ever end up playing where you brand cows? Well, I'll definitely say your your ranching knowledge has got considerable gaps, Joe. Uh, evidently, some podcaster you. <laughs> so you get a branding iron, which is basically like a, a, an outline of a shape, or usually mm. it's like a symbol of uh, lettering. You put it into flaming hot coals, and then you stick it on the cow's arse, and it goes. And then they're branded because you look at the cow's arse and it'll say... Yeah, like the farmer's logo or whatever. Yeah. And Instagram handle. So that's that's what Terry... Because Terry Funk owns the Double O Ranch in Amarillo, Texas. He had his Double O branding iron and he would set it on fire and then brand Cactus Jack. That's uh, horrible. It is. And this feud escalated. So Cactus Jack thought, I'm going to use my old weapon from my Japan days. I'm going to use the fire chair. And the fire chair would be a kerosene-soaked rag that was held to a chair and set on fire and then you could hit someone with. But they decided to hold it in place using sellotape, which is not known for being particularly good against fire. When you're playing rock sellotape fire, never choose sellotape when the other person goes with fire. Always pick rock. And, <laughs> oh no, you've taped my rock. But yeah, the chair was swung and the sellotape immediately melted and a large fireball, which was a kerosene-soaked towel on fire, flew into the audience, hit someone and set them on fire. What? Yeah, fan was set on fire in ECW what? show. Yep. And they were sued because of it. What happened? Was the fan... I feel silly even asking, were they okay? Fang got burns as far as I know, but the fan was okay and they were getting free t-shirts and hang out with <laughs> the boys. There you go, free t-shirts. And again, yeah, later on, a few years later, they decided to sue. They had to go into court because of it. If you want to read one of the weirdest things ever, it's in Foley's second autobiography and he tells about like him, Raven, Terry Funk and Paul Heyman like, like in 2001 all meeting up at kind of like a weird high school reunion to get sued for setting someone on fire. I think eventually what happened was because they proved that the guy who got the fire that he was okay and he didn't ask for any medical help and then he was getting free t-shirts and hanging out with the boys and saying it was right, okay. I see. It kind of, you know, he, he took one for the team kind of and was maybe seen as being going for a cash grab. But yeah, shit like that was happening all the goddamn time. Now, 
ECW was known for its extreme style, its hardcore weaponry and its bloodletting and whatnot. But did you know or were you aware about ECW's role in bringing in technical wrestlers into the mainstream? No, I was really surprised actually when Paul Heyman said that at one point other wrestling companies like the WWF and WCW started nicking their talent. Now, I take umbrage with the term stealing with regards to... Like, honestly, that is so ridiculous. The concept that you offering to pay a wrestler a higher salary that they accept... And you know what as well, Joe? It's somehow stealing. It's so stupid because as well what it does is it perpetrates that idea of wrestlers as being like livestock or being like, you know, just stuff that you have sitting in your warehouse. They're human beings yeah and if they want to make more money elsewhere the fuck is that a raid like exactly they might have kids and a mortgage like fucking let them earn money wherever they want to go don't make it weird i'm just saying that because i raided joe from her job to be a podcaster so. <laughs> <laughs> the co-op bank is coming for you. <laughs> so yeah paul mentions at one point about how he had to stop protecting ECW because of the fact that his talent kept getting nicked. Mm. And he said to try and get around this, he started bringing in wrestlers from other companies or or other areas where people hadn't maybe previously thought to to go. Mm. Now, I don't understand why that doesn't count as as nicking them. Because you're nicking them from another country. Yeah, from Japan or Mexico. You can't steal from Japan or Mexico. That Anything you take from another country is obviously it's just free and it's your right to You hate freedom. That's why you you hate capitalism. But if you take it from you know another american company that's that's nicking <laughs> so we brought over all these like japanese wrestlers and all these lucha libre style wrestlers mm. where they brought in their own style of wrestling which hadn't been seen before by western audiences yeah and i decided to show joe a match that was emblematic of that style great use of that word there i'm gonna pat myself on the back i can't believe you said that to yourself i just i love that it's my new favorite i think but I was like, oh, Joe, let's watch some extreme championship wrestling. This is the last match we watched as well. And I sat Joe down to show Hostile City Showdown 1995, Eddie Guerrero versus Dean Malenko for the TV title. And I bet you were thinking, oh, this will be all barbed wire baseball bats and tape fist. And it was an amazing technical display. One of my favorite kind of sleeper technical god matches that is on the network, which you can check out. It is hidden away there. Were you surprised to see that this was happening in front of that bloodthirsty crowd and they were cheering for it and they were loving it? I was quite surprised because it seems tame by ECW standards. How so? Well, because I think because I'm used to this style of wrestling now as a modern audience member. Mm-hmm. That style of wrestling is actually probably more commonplace than any of the violent stuff. That's true, yeah. So for me, it's like, that that's very normal style of wrestling. That is very cool, obviously, and I appreciate it greatly. And it takes a lot of skill and effort and hard work. But to me, that that's kind of the normal. Yeah. But I guess thinking back, you know, ECW was all about innovation. It wasn't just about bloodletting and mm. gore and violence. It was about seeing things that you couldn't see anywhere else. Yeah, it was definitely like the kind of it's like the fringe, isn't it? It's yeah. like if you go up to the fringe, you're going to see comedy and plays and acts that you wouldn't necessarily see. Otherwise, you're seeing a little bit of everything from around the world. I just find it very interesting that I wonder what your take on it is because my viewpoint is that ECW, since you know it went bankrupt and whatnot, was pushed so heavily by WWE as being like, oh, that's where the hardcore stuff is. Wait, there's going to be tables and fire and all sorts when you check it out on the network. You know, 
And I think a lot of the reason is it's very easy to promote something as being like, here's this violent show, wow, as opposed to here's this show that at some points can be quite violent, but also can show you some of the technical aspects of wrestling from Japan and synthesize some of the styles from across the world into an enjoyable experience for all. That doesn't really seem as immediately marketable. No, it's not. But I think everyone who's wrestling on the roster currently would look to the likes of Dean Malenko versus Eddie Guerrero as being like, their kind of inspiration and whatnot. Mm. This is like real kind of primordial, important stuff. And I think that's the kind of wrestling as well that's going to keep the fans watching. Mm. Because you get bored of the violent stuff after a while. You get desensitized to it and you kind of, you come to expect it, I think. And it's all well and good for if you want to show, you know, your mates at school, like, oh, this is what real wrestling is like, you know, it's the hardcore violent stuff. You know, it's the stuff that you can show people who've never watched much wrestling and they'll be immediately impressed. Yeah, they won't think it's fake. Yeah, exactly. But if you've been watching wrestling a bit longer, then you sort of come to appreciate more of the the technical style and Mm. the stuff that takes maybe a bit more skill. The the no big deal cartwheels of Eddie Guerrero and Dean Malenko. Yeah, Dean Malenko does cartwheels right at the very beginning. It's great. Starts off with a cartwheel. Had you seen either of these guys wrestle before? Eddie's someone who's been requested. We will be doing an episode on. But had you actually seen Eddie Guerrero wrestle? Not wrestle, I don't think. I've I've never seen him around on SmackDown Crawl stuff yeah. that you and Adam have been doing. He's, he's often on screen in oh, China. Yes. But I've never actually seen him wrestle. I obviously, I know that he's a hugely influential wrestler. I know mm. that he's Sasha Banks' is like number one inspiration. Dean Malenko, I've never seen before. I hadn't even heard of him before. And wow. I actually thought that he was Kurt Angle when <laughs> he was on In the Ring at one point, I think, when you were watching something. You said something to me about Dean Malenko that was very, very strange. Was it you said that you thought he was dead? Oh, God. Yeah, that makes really, me sound really I bad. know. Please contextualize this before people think that you're a horrible person. But when you said that, I was, I literally, my monocle fell into my glass. I was like, excuse me, what? Right. I ne- yeah, I'd never heard of Dean Malenko. As far as I've come across, he's not been one of those names like Eddie Guerrero or Rob Van Dam. You know, the names that kind of, even though they're not within the current zeitgeist of wrestling so yeah. much they're a huge part of it and they get mentioned a lot yeah, of the names time. that you hear a lot really yeah whereas Dean Malenko had never heard of him and he's mm. obviously so good like he this match was was you know he shows a huge amount of ability mm. very talented technical wrestler got a great look to him oh, I just yeah. couldn't understand how someone who could keep pace with Eddie Guerrero in the match like this hadn't been someone I'd heard of before so that's why I thought Often, when there's someone I really, really like and I haven't heard about them before, it's because they're dead. Yeah. And that's the sad truth. That, that happened is... with Mr. Perfect. <laughs> it's inadvertently. Owen Hart. Yeah. Like, it's the sad but common truth. He's one of those really rare cases of someone who was an awesome wrestler, had great matches, wrestled in all three big companies. He was in ECW, WCW, WWE, and... You know, people like Daniel Bryan will say, one of my favorite wrestlers, Dean Malenko. Like, a lot of like, wrestlers who do, like, the technical style and whatnot will always say he's one of their favorite wrestlers. But he's just one of those rare cases where he kind of floated along. He had great matches everywhere. He never reached anything above his kind of mid-card, like, level because he was shorter. And that was just kind of... So ridiculous. And oh, then my he just, God. He retired and he's actually an agent and a producer for WWE and has been for many, many years. That's awesome. And I'm really glad to hear it. Mm. So what were your thoughts on this match then? I liked it. I mean, I didn't love it. I gave it three stars out of five. Mm. It was a lot of flips, which I like, but there wasn't much story to it again, which I think I need to get a match above a three star yeah, This very much was its 
two wrestlers who are great at wrestling who want to be the best at wrestling. Yeah. But I guess I was just, I wanted to show you this because, and it had been requested a lot, because I think people wanted you to know that ECW is not just, you know, you can look beyond the brand guidelines that WWE have for ECW, and there is a lot more to it. And the fact that WCW constantly is praised as being like, they brought Lucha Libre to the mainstream, because yeah, they had a big TV deal, but all they did was nick that for the Cayman brought in. Rey Mysterio, Psychosis, Conan. These are all wrestlers who had wrestled only in Mexico. And to think that people wouldn't like look fucking onto the country that's attached to you, where there's a hotbed wrestling scene that goes back a hundred years or more, that you wouldn't think to bring a few of them fucking in for a few shots, mm-hmm. lads. That's so weird. So weird. <laughs> Quickly, before we move on, I, just, I have to say this. I'm sorry, I do. But Dean Malenko looks like if Roderick Strong had a baby with Tyler Bate. Okay, that's all I wanted to say. We can move on now. <laughs> Oh god, I'm gonna get that image out of my head now. He's got Tyler Bates' body, yeah, with like kind of the the big torso and the the kind of the short but stocky arms and legs, yeah. But he's got like the look of Roderick Strong. I see, very interesting, big strong boy, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> ECW was also known for not just bringing in the, uh, the the talent and showcasing stuff from all over the world. They had a real straightforward approach when it comes to injuries and booking problems and whatnot. WWE and WCW would often go to hilarious lengths to try and prove insider information wrong because, you know, kayfabe and you're not one of the boys. My favourite one always was when Macho Man and Hulk Hogan were meant to have a match in WCW and one of them clearly had a broken arm, which Dave Meltzer had reported and this thing saying, hey, expect a different match at the show because one of these guys has got a broken arm. And then, like, Hulk Hogan and Randy Savage burnt the Observer on WCW going, observe this, brother, and then proceeded to have a match where they very carefully avoided the arm because wow. you know and shit like that is just so absurd you know and people would often go and like they would go to the extent of working hard or like having an absurd plot twist in the story to make out oh no they're not injured it's just we don't want you to know whereas like Heyman would literally like I remember I bought an ECW DVD and I was like, awesome, this is great. I can't wait to see. I heard there's a great Paul Heyman promo on this. I put it in. It's like, hello everyone, I'm Paul Heyman. Jerry Lynn is injured tonight. So tonight, instead of Jerry Lynn versus Rob Van Dam, it's going to be Lance Storm versus Rob Van Dam. And I know you paid money to see Jerry Lynn because he is such an amazing performer. But I promise you, ECW will provide the greatest match of all time when Rob Van Dam faces off against Lance Storm. And for that, we thank you. And it's like, oh, okay, I'm, I'm on board now. And I've got goosebumps again, you know. <laughs> they would, and he would go out to the ring like Sabu once. He took more money to appear in Japan than ECW, and he came out to the ring and he fired him in front of all of the fans. What, like in real life, not in case? In real life, as in he came out and he said, "Someone who promised me, he said that he would come here even if he was offered anything else, and didn't give me a phone call, decided to take your money out of your pocket and not give you the fans what you want." Boo. <laughs> It's a huge part of ECW, seemingly, is Paul Heyman... Controlling the narrative? Yeah, but like... But but blaming it on the audience. So he's created this culture and created this audience that expects violence, that values honesty to an extent of like, you know, if you get injured, they want to know about it because that means, you know, that means someone got injured in, in an actual wrestling match, which I imagine at the time, if you've got all these other wrestlers and other companies pretending they haven't been injured when they have, that makes ECW seem way more hardcore. Mm. Makes them seem honest. Yeah. You know, they're not trying to hide anything. They're not telling us, you know, a fake story. This is real. But then to use that 
that culture that he's created to tell a story of a very public story in front of the audience of like you know he's sold out you know you paid for this you were entitled to this wrestler and he's gone and done his own thing for more money imagine if there was social media back then oh my god sabu your twitter would have blown up like i don't know i think that's irresponsible it is it's super irresponsible but he he doesn't care He's, and neither did Sabu because he came back a few years later anyway. So. <laughs> it, it's good for the company. Yeah. It's part of their brand. There's a quote from Paul Heyman in the documentary we watched. The audience is the story. It's what made us different. Mm. So he understands to think of the audience as its own separate character entity almost yeah. within the context of ECW. You've got all these violent, hardcore wrestlers, the technical wrestlers, and then you've got the fourth wall, the audience. Mm. And you feed them just enough and then you don't feed them for a few days like hungry dogs and then they're ravenous for whatever you want to give them you're right though because before I mean the fans always want to be the stars of the show like, yeah. you, why, why do people throw beach balls why do people go eh and count down the timer Attention's everyone everything. wants to be part of the show they do and uh, ECW I think set a lot of the precedent for that because before the closest thing we got to audience involvement was Hulk Hogan referring to us collectively as a unit against our will you know <laughs> <laughs> but like Heyman gave the fans a lot of power and some of the best stories in ECW came from that you had like Mikey Whipwreck we talked about in our job episode the little kid who never landed a single lick of offense but the fans decided we like this kid he's fucking hardcore because he can take a beating like no one else and all of a sudden he's world champion fighting against stunning steve austin or you had the story where mick foley is like pleading with tommy dreamer please stop pandering to these fans i know i've been to the mountaintop i've been to the nice companies like wcw and these fans will be the death of you all you're going to do is hurt yourself wrestling's a way to make a living nothing more nothing less and that's like oh man the story then of him trying to prove himself to the fans and another character who's like saying no don't listen to them it makes for real drama and emotion but you had probably heard a lot about the fans of ECW beforehand that a lot of people I think were sending tweets and Facebook posts about kind of going, oh, prepare yourself for the awful, terrible fans. They're mm-hmm. the worst fans ever. The wrestlers in the documentary talked about them being the most demanding, bloodthirsty, sometimes horrible fans, and sometimes they said they were the best fans. What is your take on the ECW audience? Oh, I mean, it's so complicated. Because they play an integral part of the story of ECW. Mm. You cannot have that company without those fans. It's like the Rocky Horror Picture Show being played in a, on its own, like in a, without an audience. Like without that audience being there, it ceases to be what it actually is. Mm. You know, it has to have that interplay. And if you think of the audience as a character, as a heel, <laughs> it most definitely which is, what is they a are. heel, unquestionably. I could, yeah, I kind of think of the whole company. I mean, it's it's complicated as well because heels and faces within the context of ECW are almost flipped anyway. Mm. Like we were saying earlier with regards to the treatment of women, the fact that it was yeah. considered a baby face move to put a woman through a table. The fans see themselves as the heroes and they see Paul Heyman as the leader of this beautiful company. When actually, as an outsider, you see that the fans are, are a heel character. Paul Heyman's the heel owner of the company. He's <laughs> Mr. McMahon yeah. of ECW, but just positioning himself in a way that makes the audience feel like he's on their side because he is because they're both heels Mm. and if you think of it like that it all makes sense and it works and it tells this beautiful story i mean what about the idea of fans in the crowd like having identities and characters like hat guy and tie guy guy and sign guy i love that for ecw yeah that was a part of that time which i think was quite cute and i i don't mind that at all i don't 
The thing I don't like, though, is how all of these things have impacted on current wrestling. Like, we wouldn't have Frank the Clown if we didn't have Hat Guy. Yeah, and what a better place the world would be. Can you imagine? I mean, well, like, the thing is, like, Hat Guy, I remember, I love, like, the likes of Hat Guy and some of the ECW fans because they would do things like they would go to a WCW show where, say, Terry Funk was booked and they would do they would be screaming ECW to try and get the show noticed and like they like grab Terry Funk and be like ah and, like they go to WWE shows in Philly and they fly the ECW banner and they, they were like it felt like they were really trying and they were part of the consciousness of people who like the brand of trying to further it and get it noticed and all that and at the end of the day all he did was wear a hat whereas a lot of the times I feel that people they were going to these WWE shows uh, I don't know it's different because it feels like they're not there to help a brand they're there to help their brand Exactly. And it works with ECW within the context of the time and the context of the company because ECW was the small dog. Yeah. It was a small audience in a bingo hall who felt like they were counterculture, subculture. They they weren't part of the mainstream. They were fighting to be recognised and to have their rightful place mm. within the other wrestling companies that were taken really seriously at the time, like WWF. So the fans being obnoxious and trying so hard to get the company over, kind of, it was okay back then because there weren't that many of them and they had to be loud to be noticed. They didn't have social media. Yeah, and they didn't have (laughs) power. But the trouble is you've got fans nowadays in a WWE audience who still act so entitled and as though... They are this heel character that they can just put on and it adds value to the show. It yeah. doesn't. There's 40,000 of us sitting here, lads. Yeah. We're not counterculture. <laughs> yeah, you're not counterculture. And you're not adding to the story. You're not the fourth wall in a way that it's breaking the fourth wall anymore. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. Not, it's not boundary breaking. It's not innovative. It's boring and mainstream. Well, I want you to keep that theory you have about the fans in your back pocket because it's now time for us to play... For the first time ever on How To Wrestling, a new segment, a new fun segment called Take A Chance On Me. When you're all alone and the pretty birds have fun, honey, I'm still free. Take a chance on wee, wee, wee. So um, that's also as well, chance, because you say chance, chance, and that's way... This is just a long ploy to get me to say words Ireland, in a funny voice. Ireland, very much the ECW of the British Isles, uh, battling against corrupt uh, Queen Eric Bischoff and uh, <laughs> Prime Minister McMahon. If England was going to be one of the the big companies of wrestling, it would definitely be WCW. It's <laughs> mishandled. Like, right now is, is peak WCW. Yeah, too much yeah. money, too much power, <laughs> mishandled. Yeah, absolutely. No one likes it. <laughs> So, Joe, you talked about the fans of ECW. The fans of ECW are known about one thing, really. In an abstract sense, they are known about their chance. Now, you oftentimes have difficulty recognising chance in wrestling. It's something you said from a very early viewpoint. I think you shared that with Vince McMahon, who on pay-per-view once is like, hey, what are these fans saying about Mabel? <laughs> ECW! ECW! So I'm going to go through some of the chants from ECW and see if you know, if you can reckon, using your wrestle brain, what the chants are all about, okay? So think about this. It's a curated list here. Alright, here we go. Number one. Show your tits. Hmm. Hmm. Think carefully now. Okay. You are on the timer. 
I will instigate countdown rules if necessary. How to, long to, have I got? I don't know. Let's say 10 seconds. Oh, well, 10 seconds? I, I like the sting. The... What was it again? Show us your tits. Show, show your tits. Show your tits. Show your tits. Show your tits. Show okay. your tits. Um, Why would fans be chanting that in what context? Okay. What if Tommy Dreamer, yeah. he's got himself a new kitten and he's he did a, a fan poll for what to name it and they said that they should he should call his new kitten your tits <laughs> and then he was cutting a promo and he was like god this new kitten it's so cute it's got cute little paws little beans on its feet show your tits show, show your tits. tits we want to see your tits now that was when the crowd would usually see a woman and it's their breasts as well as that they wanted to see they'd say oh. that usually to like kind of a woman that was kind of usually like a fa- like if you were a face woman you would be kind of like a bit more promiscuous and would be kind of like oh I'm mice you know kind of that that was you know a couple of questions about that one yeah. All the women I've seen in ECW weren't wearing many clothes. No, very few. You could see their tits. Can't really be prudish, like, when you already So how... See. I mean, they could already, already see them. Continue to show their tits hasn't got the right beat. Or was it that they actually wanted to take all their clothes off and to be fully naked? Probably, if they had their way, it would be that, yeah. Follow-up question. Yeah. Did it ever work? Did a woman ever take off all her clothes and show her tits I mean there were women like I think of like Electra who like literally would just have like a can of beer poured over her breasts like and like okay I, while we're on the topic of women she's a crack whore hmm. she's a crack whore so I think that could be for like maybe there was a character who was um, you know playing as a, you know a sex worker maybe yeah. works the streets and they're saying you know she's a cracking sex worker she's one of the best we really appreciate her talents and abilities and we want to show her, we value her hard work. No, we just chanted that at bad women. Bad women as in bis, like misbehaved or just, just bad at their job? Women they didn't like. How do, who who decides what the audience, which women in the audience doesn't like? It's very hard. Hive mind. Going it's very on. very hard because Francine would get show your tits and then if she's a crack whore, usually within the same breath. Sometimes you it's see, kind that's of, very conflicting, isn't it? Because if you wanted whore, to see someone's tits, breasts, yeah. yeah, probably best not to call them a crack whore. Mm. If you're going to say it an insult, you know, if you're if they are, you know, a sex worker who identifies as a whore specifically, and you're saying like, you know, you're a cracking whore, then that's one thing. Mm. But like. You know, if they don't want to hear that and you want to see their breasts, maybe don't say that otherwise. Maybe not. It's not, yeah. You'll catch more breasts with, with honey, honey than vinegar. And you know what else? Breasts and honey go together a lot better than <laughs> breasts and vinegar or breasts and flies. Ah, that's very, very true. Yeah, life lessons from Joe Graham. You suck dick. Hmm. That's probably about that wrestler, you know, Richard. <laughs> and he he sucks so bad he's so bad so I mean that's probably for the best that they tried you suck dick this dick is, yeah, sucks he does he's awful Arr, dick basically anybody who would talk would be shouted you suck dick at him um, really so yeah. all the heels were gay pretty much like yeah and that was a bad thing apparently and that was a bad thing not a good thing no it's a bad thing apparently but I, thought, I thought people liked having yeah, VCW very close interesting for a locker room that was you know Pushing the uh, the limits of uh, psychoactive substances and uh, you know sharing partners and whatnot. Very small-minded traditional values. Did the uh, uh, almost hateful did the audience have at the time? It's a shame. Where's my pizza? 
Legitimate chant, by the way. These are all legit. I was going to do like, oh, I'll do fake chants and then I'll do real ones, but I reckon you would actually just not guess any of the real ones and think they're all fake. So, um, where's my pizza? Recurring, frequent chant. I reckon, you know, Paul Heyman is part of his ethos of, you know, the audience is as integral part of the company as the wrestlers themselves. He understood he had to get them on his side. Mm. Part of that was his in-ring promos, you know, his character work. But also, he occasionally ordered pizza for the audience. But sometimes there wasn't quite enough to go around and, you know, audience members would be left out and they'd be like, where's my pizza? Where's my pizza? I was like when ECW did a few shows at like a kid's birthday party, like, you know, where's the cake? Where's the... <laughs> now, where's my pizza was chanted at a group of wrestlers that were called the FBI, the full-blooded Italians. And it was a racist at them because it's like, oh, they're Italian. Where's my pizza, mate? Yeah. But now this is where it gets weird. Heyman would expand on that, right? FBI did at points have Italian-American wrestlers and it had Sal Graziano and it had uh, Nunzio, Lil Guido and Tony Mama Luke. But then he also added in people like J.T. Smith or Tracy Smothers, who are guys who are very definitely not Italian-Americans and just put them into this group called the FBI and they'd all pretend to be wise guys together. Even though Tracy Smothers had a voice like this, hey man, I'm with that FBI, them full-blooded Italians, man. Don't be trying to, where's my pizza at me, man? It says so much about the ECW audience that the only Italian food they can think of is pizza. Yeah, come on, guys. That's basically American at this point. I want a Gabagool chant at a wrestling yes, show. Gabagool. If you're gonna Gabagool. go there, like... come on, sliced meats. Okay, we're gonna we're gonna do a one which is actually quite good. Unos dos tres cuatro cinco seis etc. They're counting out the number of seconds that the Spanish wrestler has been out of the ring. <laughs> and they're doing it in his language so he understands because he maybe English isn't his first language. And they're trying to show that they are also spending some time on Duolingo. You're actually really close to it. Am I? Yes. When super crazy or psychosis or any of the luchadors, when they would do the 10 punch spot or anything that was like, one, two, three, they would do uno, dos, tres. And that's how Kevin learned how to count to 10 Spanish was because of ECW. So there you go. That's really cool. And I wish wrestling in general did that with more languages because yeah. A, it's educational and B, it sounds really cool. It does. It was really awesome and it really helped them, like international flair and yeah. feel and whatnot. It makes us all kind of feel like we're in this together. You fucked up. Now that's a common one and actually one which we'll hear not very often now and then you'll hear it on WWE TV even but very pervasive on ECW shows constant chance of you fucked up you fucked and up and that's because of that real infamous nasty feud real problematic wherein uh, the wrestler Up was in a Sick. romantic sexual relationship with uh, Raven and, of course it's uh, Raven first wrestler that came to my head oh Sandman then does that make it better not really no no exactly and so of course they, they chanted the infamous tagline to that feud which was you fucked up yeah no you fucked up as if you made any mistake in an ECW match so be it be that you kind of go for a springboard and you slip or you kind of don't miss the guy the full way you go to punch and you miss they would chant, you fucked up. That happens all the time, especially in NXT. I mean, people they don't... mess up. No, no, sorry. That doesn't happen all the time. But like fans chanting, you fucked up, is quite pervasive. Do you think, because that's something which only started in ECW, and there's actually, the rest I mentioned already, JT Smith, he did famously once do a big massive botch, like he fucked up massively, and he got these big you fucked up chants. And then they actually made it into his character where like he would go up to do like very basic moves and just like do a big pratfall off the top ropes and people would chant, you fucked up. But, I mean, we saw a number of times in this documentary people like Taz, you know, uh, broke his neck, 
Benoit broke his neck, Sabu, you know, these guys all broke their necks in this documentary. Um, by and large, a lot of them would have had their necks broken to echoing chants of, you fucked up. And I wonder, is wow. that appropriate? Like, Hmm, maybe not. It, it's a bit fourth wall breaking. Wrestlers make mistakes. That's why we have Michael Cole say, didn't get all of it. I prefer that to, you fucked up. Well, the trouble with trans chanting, you fucked up, like, really use your brain for a second, because what's that going to do? It's going to make the wrestler feel bad. Yeah, they're going to feel anxious, it, yeah. and they're more likely to make mistakes. So is that what you want? You want them to fuck up more? Because that's what's going to happen. Like, basic behavior psychology states that that is like the the natural course of events if you criticize someone after they've made a mistake yeah i mean chanting you fucked up at the sandman is something that didn't really happen that much but people chant you fucked up at like say jerry lynn or you know like wrestlers who did a technical style who's like oh i've done 20 fast-paced technical moves and i've had one little slip up and i get these fucking echoing chants yeah, you didn't get the, the sandman episode where he was concussed and just falling all over the place that wasn't just like rang out with you fucked up you literally could have put that on a tape loop for that yeah. entire match and yes that constantly what you were seeing is, is wrestlers fucking up that's mm-hmm. what this match is so while we're on to the topic here they're talking about issues of loyalty I mean Taz is the one we just mentioned there Taz broke his neck he never had a contract with ECW at all he was on a handshake agreement and when he broke his neck in the entire nine months that he, his neck was broken on that handshake agreement he continued to get paid so Heyman was all about fostering loyalty with wrestlers who he you know, thought were kind of important parts to the company. But he always had the opinion that if you want to leave, there's the door. Off you go. Bye. And we mentioned about the raids and whatnot. And Eric Bischoff in this documentary talks about how, you know, absolutely it's not a raid. How is it a raid if you go and you buy talent? Is it a raid when Vince McMahon got Roddy Piper and Hulk Hogan and Bobby Heaton and all the, the stars of the AWA when he started the WWF? No one calls that a raid. And then Vince kind of chimes in and mentions that Paul and ECW were on the payroll because he felt he needed to compensate him for taking so much talent. I don't know. Like, do you sure, think- Vince. Yeah, I bet that's the reason. Mm-hmm. Now, this whole thing about Vince paying Heyman, we talked about that on, on Heyman's episode, that he was on the payroll, but that's the that was a big secret that was revealed here. No one knew about that, that Paul was getting money from WWE at the mm. time. I mean, do you think that's hypocritical or...? In what way? Well, I mean, you're kind of saying, oh, there's the big guys, fuck the WWF, WCW, the big guys bring down our necks. Also, half the reason the show is continuing or we can run a pay-per-view this Sunday. Like, there were times where Vince, literally, it's like, in 2000, there was once or twice where it was like, the pay-per-view, I'll cover it. Like, you know, your cameras, all the production expenses, the building hire, all that. What year would this have been? 2000, I don't think that Vince was only paying for... Raiding talent. Yeah, what do you That's think? That's my hot take. What do you think he was paying for? I think he's paying for Heyman's consultancy. Mm. I think Heyman was giving him ideas. Because think around the time when he started paying Heyman was around the time the Attitude Era started, right? Would have been, yeah, just before 96 mm. was when it kind of, he said that he noticed it, yeah. Vince is a very competent businessman who can appreciate talent and he understands what he is not so good at yeah i think seeing a company like ecw start to grow and i think immediately dollar signs would have been popping up and he understood what this kind of rivalry could create Mm. i mean did you see ecw as it was kind of put forward this documentary a lot of people said it was just like the dudley boys even said it was a feeder system in the end like that's all it was it was where people went from different companies to find their characters polish up a bit and get ready for the big time and the big time was WWE, hmm, and that was sounds it. Sounds familiar. 
I mean, it does. I mean, sounds like NXT. Do you see crossovers with ECW and kind of any modern promotions? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, it was the the pilot for how things are run now. Absolutely, and I think it works really well to do. I don't think it's bad to mm. run companies like that. There's nothing inherently wrong with being yeah. a feeder company. No, and I think it works well for both because with ECW you can't keep everyone on forever, or else it won't stay innovative and fresh. Like part of the reason it was successful was because. They had to survive to keep on their toes. They had to bring in new talent all the time. They had to keep innovating and doing things that other companies hadn't done before. Yeah, and they constantly were coming up with reasons and excuses to have this new talent. Like, for instance, Tommy Dreamer and Raven had a feud that lasted for three years in ECW. It's considered to be like one of the all-time classic feuds. And the actual story of it was that Dreamer was a bully at camp and Raven was a misfit kid at camp. And... As a result of that, he had come back as a demon from his past to torment him. And he brought all these characters, like the freaks from the camp. It was like the Blue Meanie and Stevie Richards. Or the fat girl from camp, who turned out to be Beulah McGillicuddy, who was now a Playboy Playmate. So, Heyman always found ways to, for there to need to be more characters. And he used the storylines to, to constantly be doing that. And, like, I don't know if when Steve Austin went to ECW, for instance, if he knew that was his route into the WWE... But, I mean, if you watch some of those promos that Steve Austin was doing, they highlighted a few of them here. It's like, goddamn, like, he wouldn't gotten that platform anywhere else. There was no way you would have seen that elsewhere. Like, yeah, exactly. It's the promotion for, like, wrestlers, wrestlers. It's the mm. place where you could go as a wrestler, see, here was a company where guys who had ideas were given an opportunity to, to try them out. You know, very little risk involved. Yeah. Heyman was notoriously good for drawing out the strengths in a person and hiding their weaknesses. So it's, it is, it's a development kind of hub in a way where you can go test out some of your ideas, to try out your character work on an audience, which is, you know, it's going to love you or hate you. It's, yeah. it's jumping in the deep end. But I mean, it really was effective in that sense because I remember when I was, you know, I watched WWF long before I watched WCW, but most of the characters who I loved in WWF had stints in this company. Like from the big stars like Mankind and Steve Austin down to like kind of opening acts like the Blue Meanie and Stevie Richards that I like fell in love with because they were so weird. And that's why I was very happy that Joe got to see a little bit of the Blue World Order, the BWO. I mean, do you think... Just putting it out there, you said that Scott Hall was a sexy hunk and one of the sexiest men wrestling. I know you like the bad guy, but the blue guy, did he pull off the look, the vibe of Scott Hall in the NWO? He's about as far away from <laughs> Scott Hall in all senses of the word as, 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 as possible within the realms of physics. I love so much because when they would come out and do the BWO gimmick where they would just like do the most ham-fisted, like Hollywood Nova would be like, you know something, dude? What about here, dude? In front of 168 million thousand people, dude. Trying. Like, not, like, yeah, the fact that there's no effort and then you have the announcer going, ha, 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 you can't sue us. It's a parody. <laughs> <laughs> Another angle that we got, and this was one that I wanted to ask you a question. If you reckon that Vince Russo was a bit of a fan of ECW back yeah. in the day, when we had the first ever pregnancy angle, and the first ever lesbian angle take place. Oh, fuck off the- calling that a lesbian angle. <laughs> this is so great, right? We have Tommy Dreamer going, and then, of course, in ECW, we had the first ever lesbian angle. And Joe literally was like, awesome, yes, woo, here we go. Hooping and hollering, and like, naive uh, little girl. I've never seen that frown turn upside down and then back into a frown. <laughs> you should see my notes for this. There we go. First ever lesbian angle. Oh. <laughs> 
So the lesbian angle turned out that Beulah McGillicuddy claimed that she was pregnant, which led Raven to be upset, and then found out that no, Beulah was not pregnant, she was just using that to hide the fact that she was cheating, and then Tommy's like, who is he? And it's like, oh, it is not a he, Tommy Dreamer, it is not a he. And then Kimono, another lady who made her name in ECW from removing her clothes, just goes, it's me! And they make out. Yep. Now, but they don't hang on. Okay, here they we go. They don't just make out, though, do they? They fall to the floor. They, they, they... fall to the floor and start, like, dry-humping each other. That Which, is... ha- have you ever... <laughs> have you ever kissed someone before? Yeah, I have, and I always wondered, like, I think a lot of people maybe at the time reckoned that's how lesbians kissed. Yeah, I mean... On the floor. <laughs> I mean, I, I have many lesbian friends. If they've ever made out like that, they've done so in the privacy of their own home. I've never seen that happen in public. The f- collapse to the floor. Oh, wait, there's more. They found a way to make it even better. Did they, like, cover them in gravy or, like, roll them into a birthday cake or something? No, Tommy Tommy picks them both up by the scruff of the neck and they're like, ah, let's be lesbians. And then... <laughs> all, all lesbian women are aliens. Show us your real form, lesbians. <laughs> Oh, and they're always evil as well. Exactly. And then Tommy, he says, I'm hardcore. I'll take them both. Uh, and then he makes out with both of them. Uh, it's not a lesbian angle, is it? If it ends with a man forcibly sticking his tongue down each woman's throat. No, Joe, but in its defense, it's not a lesbian fantasy from the mid 90s unless it ends with a man. fuck's sake. <laughs> Fucking hell. Uh, Kimona, by the way, people wanted to point out this is a what she was famous for, not covered in the documentary. Some view it as being like an all-time classic ECW moment. The ring broke out a show, okay? So they didn't have a ring for like 40 minutes, and it's like shit, the crowd are gonna leave, they're gonna get antsy, we need to make you know make the ring back up. What are we gonna do? And depending on who you ask, Kimono was either asked, offered, or forced to go out and do a strip tease on top of the ramp for everyone. Jesus Christ. So that's it. Kimono's had a great career in ECW there. The only uh, Asian-American woman in ECW, but also involved in a lesbian angle and a stripping for uh, making up time while the ring gets built up again. I'm going to quickly, while we're on the subject of stripping, because yeah. it's something, I feel sometimes people get the wrong idea with me and do think I'm a big prude, and I'm not. Okay. We went to see an Eve show last year. Yeah. And it stripping ended in that, yeah. with a burlesque strip show. And it was awesome. You know why it was awesome? Because they paid that professional burlesque stripper to do her job. That's it. I'm happy to see lots of burlesque and stripping in wrestling, so long as it's fair and not done in a gross way, and it's upfront and honest about that's what it is. And not instead of or masquerading to be the wrestling that women get to have. And also, it's for, you know, a much wider audience than a bunch of straight men. Yeah, it's true. But I mean, some would argue, though, that, hey, Kimono, she probably was hired from the Bada Bing or whatever. That was, you know, Heyman probably told her that was her job. If there's rumours then about her being forced Mm. to do it, I'm sorry, as soon as that shit gets confused and muddled, you know, it's, it's not right, is it? That's true. We cut to King of the Ring 1996 where pervasive ECW chants ruin what is considered to be one of the worst pay-per-views that WWE have ever done. And then Vince is like, it's a brand, it's making noise. He was getting his ass kicked at that moment in time by WCW and their edgy new angles. He needed edge, they knew they needed attitude. That's what Scott Hall and Shawn Michaels and all of his top guys were saying, hey, we need to have some more of that. Vince Russo has been brought in as a writer, but he's incorporating 
ECW. I mean, were you shocked to see that ECW appeared not just on pay-per-view, but on several episodes of Monday Night Raw in the, the mid to late 90s? Not really. I mean, I didn't really have any preconceived ideas about whether or whether it wouldn't be. Mm. I mean, it helped them massively get mainstream exposure. And it's kind of... It's one of those things that I think Vince has always been very cryptic about why he did it and with whom he spoke to about. Because they chat with, like, Jerry Lawler, for instance, you know, about them getting on pay-per-view. And he's like, I have no idea why they did this, why they let them get on TV, like, or why they put them on our show, why they promote them. It's, uh, it's, it makes no sense to because, me. Because obviously he was getting something out of it, and that was consultancy, talent. Yeah. Someone like Paul Heyman, who knows all the upcoming wrestlers, who to yeah, keep an eye on. Yeah, it's a like. testing ground to try out new innovative techniques that you might then nick and put on the Attitude Era. Like, why wouldn't you? And something that people always forget, people always talk about how your ECW had its wrestlers nicked and stick, taken onto WWE TV, but there were several angles that WWE did where they sent like wrestlers who weren't quite there yet, people like Draws and Brackus, like names who they wanted to put on TV who they weren't ready. And they sent them there to kind of as a bit of a trial by fire. It's kind of like a intense developmental. So it did go both ways, even though it probably seemed a bit one-sided. But ECW... Oh, no, I think it's totally both ways. Yeah, yeah. well, they got so much money from it. Like, yeah. It's, the only reason the company was able to stay around for as long as it did was because of that. thing I don't understand with the whole Jerry Lawler thing, because he's... It just goes to show he's not a businessman. When he's interviewed here, it's it's clear he doesn't he doesn't get it. He fucking despises it. Yeah, he extremely hates- crappy wrestling. Yeah. Whereas Vince, he speaks so fondly of ECW and of Paul Heyman, and I think what it is is that you know Vince, he's the big fish. He's looking around the pond, sizing out all the other big fish. Yeah. The big fish he's up against is WCW. It's not ECW. It's not the ECW is not a threat to them. No, he can learn from them. Keep your friends close and your enemies closer. Yeah, that kind of thing. It could be like that little fish that bites off the crud and you know helps <laughs> it along the way. But Jerry's like he's like even with the benefit of hindsight here in this documentary, he's like I just don't get it. Yeah. I don't get. It. And it's weird because Jerry Lawler hit a fair few women on uh, on TV in Memphis back in the day. You know, there's a lot of the style of ECW. You saw in Memphis with the kind of over-the-top characters and some, let's just say, less than modern views about how women and people who are gay or whatnot should be handled or, or put forward. But I think his real issue with it was that it was people taking physical risks. It's like, oh, he's just hitting himself in the head with a toaster. He's not a real wrestler. Mm. Or that guy's like wrestling in sweatpants. He's not a real wrestler. And it's kind of, I think he thought that it was sullying the name of wrestling. It's not this wholesome family thing. It's this gritty, greasy, like human cockfighting, as they called UFC at the time. It was very hard for them to get on pay-per-view because of the image that they had as a result of that. But that's, that's a good thing. It's a selling point. That's a selling point. Exactly. That makes it underground and cool and it makes it ECW. If it was accessible and, you know, on every TV network and everything, it wouldn't have that reputation of it being hard to find and rare. And I do think as well, like, if Jerry Lawler, like, I think is very much the canary in the coal mine of ECW, if he at any point was like, yeah, good job, guys, great show. I think Paul would be like, we've done something really wrong here. And again, spite, a lot of this is based off of, because... You know, we talked about it on Heyman's episode. He went through Memphis and he's, you know, a lot of 
anti-Semitic shit he apparently had to, to, to sit through when he was there. I bet. And I think a lot of the reason that Jerry probably hates ECW is because he, in fact, just hates Paul, and Paul is ECW, and you can't dissociate the two. I think it goes even deeper than that with Jerry Law, let's be honest, because I think he's convinced himself that the reason he hated ECW was because he didn't like the violence or whatever, and he thinks mm. it's not real wrestling. But... He obviously can't genuinely believe that because there's technical wrestling being done in ECW at this time, which is far cleverer than anything he's yeah. ever done in his career. Far mm. more technical. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Requires a lot more training and ability. Than... A lot less fried chicken, yeah. And yeah. More training. Like, yeah. Jerry Lawler's talent comes in him doing as few moves as possible and putting on a big show of it. Yeah. He can do a look that gets a crowd popping. Mm. Like, that's his skill. But that style of wrestling isn't cool at this time anymore. He's become old-fashioned. It's boring. A lot of what he did, though, I think is maybe in style again a bit more. Now, people are looking Absolutely. to see how the character in Less Is More can actually help. But I think it's about it's in relation to the, the time, exactly. you know? Yeah. And that had become the mainstream. That was like the Ric Flair style of wrestling. Yeah. As few, the Hulk Hogan as well. Like, as few moves as possible. You're not putting your body in any danger. It's just character work. Yeah. Which definitely has value in its own way. But this is a time when character work isn't enough. You've got the character work already. It's, that's a big part of ECW. Mm. Is these fascinating, cool, weird counterculture characters but then you've got the violence as well which is an easy scapegoat for people like Jerry Lord to be like ah it's not real yeah but the real thing is is he's he's redundant he's irrelevant at this point and I think he knows that yeah ECW did manage to get on pay-per-view but it was a very very shaky road to it they had to have the fans essentially bully and hassle the different pay-per-view companies to get on they finally did get on and then they had that's handy isn't it yeah <laughs> I'm just saying like in terms of the story of ECW if you yeah. have the, the whole thing of oh well our fans had to fight for us yeah, to get us on yeah it's your letter writing campaign like you know. literally old school like how you got shit done back it's in the day it's about as far away from the WCW way of doing things corporately <laughs> as possible yeah it's true it, it really gave everyone a sense of ownership of it. but the pay-per-view had a very shaky road to it actually happening they had it pulled on christmas eve or the year before because of what's known as the mass transit incident was this one that you had heard about before no never so the mass transit incident was a pretty dark story in the history of ecw and another big lawsuit that happened and went down there was meant to be a tag match at a house show which involved Devon dudley and his partner axel rotten taking on the gangsters which is a tag team that has New Jack, a wrestler known for his very violent ways and, let's just say, less than sane attitude at most points in his career. Axel Rotten couldn't show up. It was a house show. And one of the fans came up to Paul and said, I'm a trained wrestler. Here's my wrestling license. Here's my uh, documentation. He just happens Uh, to carry all this with him. Yeah, well, I mean... His word was taken a lot more than it should be. He mm-hmm. said that he was trained with Killer Kowalski. No one actually bothered to reference any of this or check it out. It was like, oh, cool, you, you want to wrestle your local guy? Fine. People will vouch for him. That's okay as far as I'm concerned. And it turns out that he lied about his age. He wasn't 19, like he said. He was 17 years old. He didn't have wrestling training. What little training he had, he just he happened to know a dwarf wrestler from the area, I think. So he had a connection loosely, but he didn't have any training. He had his own little wrestling gear and his own character. He dressed up as an evil bus man called Mass Transit. He was a very heavy set, unathletic fellow. And New Jack took exception to the, the untrained wrestler in the ring. So he beat this kid up with a toaster, a crutch, hockey stick. Oh yeah, he brings out the bucket of weapons. Yeah. So that's all I have with this kid. He's beat the shit out of him a little bit. And then the, the guy says, I want to get juice. I want to be one of the boys. You know, 
cut me, you know, blade me. Now, I think you asked me not that long ago, oh, has it ever been that wrestlers will ask another wrestler to cut them? Now, nine times out of ten, the best person to cut yourself and blade yourself in wrestling. We covered blading in one of our first episodes, folks. Go check out the introduction to wrestling to find out about that. But yeah, you run the blade across your forehead, causes the blood to come down, you breathe deep, you get the crimson mask, whatever. Well, he had a little shiv, essentially, made for himself. Oh, he says, Yeah, he says to Nujek, can you cut me? And Nujek says, yeah, I'll cut you. And like... You, you, the footage exists I didn't show you the footage because I kind of feel like I'll tell you about it you want to find it yourself go watch your own snuff movies like but New Jack literally you can see him in the, the video he just has what looks like a prison shiv and he pulls the guy down and just goes huh, and he cuts him deep and the kid fucking bleeds a bucket like he bleeds gallons and straight away it's like kind of okay untrained wrestler who's bleeding excessively and looks like he can't control himself because of the amount of blood loss and then afterwards, it finds out, oh, yeah, the kid, actually, he uh, he's lied about his age. And now we're being sued because, Paul Heyman, you have let an untrained under-18-year-old go onto your show and you're being sued for psychological and physical damage because New Jack has maimed the wrestler. Now, it did go to trial, and what it went down was the few reasons why he got dropped was one he lied so many times about himself and misrepresented himself that they were led to believe that well there's no way Paul in the position he was you know he took him at his word and that was a stupid thing to do but the onus wasn't on him then as a result and the other thing was that because the guy after he cut himself he started doing the heavy breathing now if you ever see a wrestler when they start bleeding they get up off the ground they start doing the big you know the big deep stomach breaths that's to push the blood out of the forehead and they were like well if he didn't want to bleed he wouldn't have asked him to cut him and he wouldn't have started doing the big breaths to get that blood out of him as quick as possible and like even as well there was testimony that when the kid was leaving he like ran back into the locker room covered in blood going no dad I'm one of the boys and ah but what you have there Joe is reality a fan who wanted to be a part of this show so much that he did that yeah and I think as important as the fans were to ECW it's worth pointing out that the line was crossed several times in terms of the fans and the show and the safety of the fans and yeah he died a few years later because of uh, complications from gastric bypass surgery but like that was a young, an underage and a minor got maimed at a wrestling show and it was an ECW show that's pretty fucking shocking stuff I mean that is shocking but you go to the lengths to get fake wrestling. What, what did he bring with him? He apparently had like a wrestling license with them or something like that. You know, like you don't just pluck one of those out of thin air. You have to no. pay to get one made. But I, I don't know if he actually had documentation and stuff like that, or if he just had like, oh, I've got, I've got a reference to whatever. I've got my words. Either way, at what point though do you hold a minor who's misrepresenting themselves, who's clearly enamoured with a company? I mean. He's culpable. <laughs> Who I really think is to blame, though, is... Okay, this is going to sound horrible. Is the parents... Maybe yeah. you don't go to an ECW wrestling show if you're under 18. Yeah, that's it. Like. And, like, absolutely, ECW is also to blame. You should... Obviously, there should always be a clear way to check someone's references and make yeah. sure they're actually qualified for the job. But <laughs> this is ECW. I don't think anyone was under any pretenses it would have actually been run like that at the time, right? Yeah, it didn't, really. And it shows as well, like... Even that happening, and this is before it went to trial, Paul said he threatened and he cried and he shouted and he begged and they still they got back on pay-per-view. 
just again that's how much of a fuss the fans were still able to make even after them kind of going oh we're a bit trepidatious about giving you a show we hear you guys are violent here's a show child gets maimed you don't have your show the they child, still get it back he wanted to be maimed he begged and then was happy about it oh afterwards. yeah i know that but just as a as a corporation like direct tv is going to look yeah. at that and kind of they're obviously just going to take the litigation side and kind of let's minimize our risk so they got on and they're barely legal for a first pay-per-view it's really impressive in terms of it was a really great show of showing you what ecw was about as in terms of actually as a show it's not particularly great i don't think but like it shows you a lot of like this little engine that could mentality you know beyond the mat the movie when they're following ecw and terry funk it's for that show barely legal and it's all on the shoulders of terry funk who's coughing up blood halfway through the show and stuff like that knocking back cores so he can muscle it out 10 seconds after the show went off the air the transformer blew like and all the power went they lost the feed can you imagine the riots if oh it had ended God. like just before the finish letter writing campaign to the power company like <laughs> but they talk about like, how they're all like just crying like Paul said you know, he was weeping Joey was weeping everyone's just bawling their eyes out because mm. they couldn't believe that they did it and that's like they, I think they're almost all in too deep it, it owned them it owned their lives yeah. you know and then you have like people you know you're getting more mainstream than people are leaving again and people are having it held against them like Raven left and Stevie left and <sighs> I mean, they talk about this mole situation that they had with Todd Gordon. Now, this was really fucking strange. So weird. So, there were people that were leaving the company, and they thought there was a mole in the locker room, and Heyman reckoned it was Todd Gordon. And he just reckoned it. He didn't have any proof. He stole his phone and hacked into his voicemail and started playing back the voicemail of people saying, oh, great deal, Todd. You got us in here to... We're going to make some big money. And then he had to retire from the company. He got, he got pushed out of it pretty much but I don't know oh it's so dodgy it just shows you though that people were obviously they knew they had to be underhanded to leave the company yeah because you, that's the kind of culture that you've created though so that's yeah. very that's very intentional and it is and it's sad that when so many people are leaving ECW on their last night they get you sold out chance and it's all back to this thing of Paul Heyman he phrases ECW as this family. He always refers to it as a family. And so do a lot of the talent who worked with him as well. Tommy Dreamer calls yeah. it a family. Taz calls it a family. Yeah, yeah. And the way Heyman talks about any of the talent he works with, even the ones that left to work at other companies for more money, he always talks about it in a way as though he just wanted to help them. He just mm. saw what they had the potential to give and he just wanted to be there for them to help them make the most of what they could be and he says that after raven leaves he says i just wanted to help him develop raven's character i thought he had so much more potential i like that's one way of him saying it but then it's like well your family member bill alfonso who's like a character who was a crooked referee not a wrestler and essentially he's told go out there and save your job wrestle for five minutes against beulah and, you know, he lost, like, a third of the blood in his body or something ah! like that. Now, there's a guy who was fighting to keep his job and to prove that he belonged in this family. And it kind of feels like, I don't know, it's a bit of a fucked up family. And usually when we get culty and the word family starts being brought into it, that's when cults, that's when cults really lose their way. <laughs> this is a bit random, but 
I feel this strongly is it there's a, quite a few similarities between the way Paul Heyman ran ECW and the way a lot of modern Silicon Valley mm-hmm. startups yeah run. yeah yeah they expect you to give everything yeah, if you don't whole, that's cool man but yeah, you're not part of the family this yeah. whole culture of bringing up new talent with innovative fresh ideas who haven't yet learned to understand their own value mm-hmm. taking advantage of them expecting to work long hard exhausting hours doing work that's really outside of their own job spec paying them very very little but saying but you're part of this family we want to help you people are so casual about it Bubba Ray is like well Paul would he just brainwash guys into believing certain things about themselves and they do whatever then I mean let's let's <laughs> yeah. talk might as well talk about it right now because brainwashing is the only way you could surely figure out that two people want to do a Taipei death match Joe which was the the nomination squeamish match to show Joe. I was going to show her Beulah and Bill Alfonso, but we saw clips instead. But I did show you the Taipei death match. What is a Taipei death match, Joe? It's very like a pork schnitzel or a uh, with that nice cornflake chicken that you can do. I didn't know what this was, and actually, I thought I'd seen a Taipei death match before because it sounded familiar. And you were like, "Have you?" <laughs> Don't been think like so. Two, I think. I think you'd remember if you had. And both of the men who are in this, I think, are the only ones who've had another one, and they're both dead now. So uh... that will kind of put it in perspective. So, what is a Taipei death match? If you and I want to take our death match up a few notches and have a Taipei death match, what do we got to do? You basically, you dip your hands in glue and then in shards of broken glass and then then you fight each other. What did you think of this match? I did not like it. <laughs> Should I read my notes? Please, please do, please do. Illuminate the people. Okay. No thanks. No. Nope. No. Nope. No thank you. Please stop. God, everyone looks bored. (laughs) That was it. The crowd really died in it, didn't they? They really did, but I've not finished. It's so slow. I hate this. No, thank you. No, thank you. Why have they got thumbtacks now? Is that that really necessary? A lot of blood. The end. Wow. What I figured it was, it was like the Matt Hardy matches that we're currently watching for our reviews on Patreon where it was punch but instead of delete it's just blood Mm. so just punches and blood and not a lot else yeah I really don't have much to say about this I did not enjoy this match I gave it no stars well how many stars dipped in broken glass did you give us none oh my god this might be your first ever no star match the Rotten Brothers gave up their blood for nothing seriously sorry guys (laughs) it's one thing I guess to brainwash people into making them smash each other with broken glass and whatnot. But there's another part of this. It's the Moonlighting Wrestlers. And we learned from this documentary that in addition to, you know, say being the champion at the time, Taz also had to run the dojo. And Taz also had to make all of the t-shirts and design all the graphics. And Tommy Dreamer and Nunzio, they brought all the t-shirts in a big U-Haul wagon every single time. And that Bubba Ray Dudley was doing the booking of the, the shows and worked with the arenas. I mean... Stevie Richards had to man the ECW hotline and people are like, aren't you Stevie Richards? Uh, no, I'm Lloyd Van Buren. What are the Van Buren boys? <laughs> hustling and wrestling. I'm a big fan of Cole Cabana. I, you know, the art of the hustle and wrestling. And you know, being a wrestling podcaster, you got to hustle as well. So what did you make into this? Are the wrestlers kind of grabbing themselves up by the bootstraps and everyone coming together to, to make it a reality and doing all these extra jobs? Again, it's I have very complicated feelings on this because as a a shallow business owner it's very clever you're 
taking advantage of these wrestlers who genuinely believe that they're fighting for something important and necessary that doesn't exist. And they say it'll it'll hopefully get us onto if we stick yeah. it out, we'll get onto bigger and better things. Yeah, make more money, and that's exactly how Paul Heyman, I'm sure, sold it to all of them. Is you know, it's oh, it's benefit for you because you're going to be selling more merchandise, you have more control. We're going to get this show big and better and more famous, and you're going to be rolling in riches if we just you know stay a few more hours tonight, guys. And uh, and you know what else? I bet Paul Heyman was doing it with them. I Two bet hours of sleep a night, apparently, yeah. is what he was on. I yeah. think that's the only way you can get people to work that hard for you, is you are right there with them. In the trenches. In like. the trenches. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They said that Paul Heyman would set up his his office on his desk would be in the middle of any locker room they were in. And that's kind of like when there's a guy who's not only giving you all the creative freedom with your character, and like they say, oh, wouldn't be odd to get into an hour-long conversation with Paul Heyman about an aspect of your character, which, by the way, I'd love to get into hour-long conversations with wrestlers about one aspect of their character. That would be a great podcast. Yes, it would. <laughs> hour-long conversations about one aspect of your character with Kevin <laughs> and Joe. It'd be fabulous. But I feel like, yeah, and then they're not only are they giving you all that personal time, but then you see them giving all this time to, to the whole mm. cause, essentially. And they're saying, you know, if, if you're able to give as much as I'm giving, we can make this a big, beautiful amazing thing I know you have all these wrestlers who are cutting these you know we looked at say Kane Dewey or the, the seminal Steve Austin promos that he was doing in ECW and then you pull that camera back you're in Paul Heyman or Ron Buffon the executive producer you're you're in the someone's mom's basement mm. I remember there was one I think it was the Steve Austin promo and they pull out and it's like Austin with the kind of cold like I'm gonna be the superstar and it's like oh man what a great fucking promo and it zooms back and you see first of all the Sandman going fuck man that's an awesome promo and then it zooms out further and there's just like a big stack of laundry and like all the promos where Joey Styles is in front of the ECW banner it's just like it's in someone's house yeah and that's like that's punk rock spirit that's everyone mucking in together when I hear Chris Brooks on the indies is making t-shirts for everyone I kind of yeah punk rock spirit everyone mucking in together but then you hear like Tommy Dreamer got didn't get a single paycheck for six months yeah. ever or there's like a lot of wrestlers who left and they said they left because look you know you didn't pay me or you've paid me but I got paid for this show but I didn't get the bonus for this show and there was a lot of people after once the pay-per-view started where it was like, once we get to the pay-per-views, you all get your bonuses. And then maybe Taz and Sabu got the big bonuses, but the champion Raven didn't. And all of a sudden, the next pay-per-view, Raven's in another company. And you kind of see then how this money game, a lot of people kind of felt that they were being taken advantage of, a lot of these guys. And that's the thing. It's it's easier to take advantage of people when you're working towards like a common goal. Mm. And when when everyone feels like they're in it together and success is just around the corner. But then once you get to that moment, that first moment of we've made it, mm. that's when things start to get tricky, I think. And you've got to then, you've got to actually start following through and they didn't and they weren't paying people. And I yeah. doubt anyone who did any like admin related work got paid for any of it. Well, there's this thing, right? Is that... There are some people who did jobs who I think got more out of it than the pay. Yeah. Like Tommy Dreamer currently runs House of Hardcore, his own promotion. And it's a very successful indie promotion that has shows regularly. But he would have learned all of that like originally, initially, by being the booker with Paul Heyman. And even though he wasn't getting paid, he was getting an education that he might have gotten elsewhere. Like Likewise, Bubba Ray Dudley, he said he got an education in business by having to do all this. And that's kind of the type of experience that you can pay for. But like, what good does it do, Nunzio, to be like, yeah... 
and you get an education in driving four hours with all the t-shirts mm-hmm. or what education did all the wrestlers wives get manning all the merch yeah, tables seriously you that, know? that's something honestly that like really <laughs> was very obvious to me was the amount of unpaid labor the women did all my brother's mates and all my brothers being in bands and shit like that yeah. back in the day i saw so yeah. much of that lad do you think you would have had such great paydays if you paid the women who were selling all your t-shirts for you at your shows so common like not just in wrestling but like in all areas there's so many instances of women being taken advantage of because they're helpful and they want to be nice and people just taking that extra advantage and that's so obvious with this so many of the wrestlers were like oh yeah we couldn't have done it if we hadn't been for my girlfriend or my wife Mm. who stayed up (laughs) night after night after night for no money by the way but great great for your partner's career i'm sure Mm. would you get out of it just out of interest anything no well if he's not being paid she's not going to get exactly (laughs) you know but i always feel though that you know even though a lot of people are leaving around this time as ecw got bigger and more popular more people started to leave but that was always part of the intrigue. It was like ECW would always end. When someone was leaving, there would always be a big surprise. The lights would go off and all of a sudden, oh my God, X, Y, and Z is there. Like Scott Hall would show up or like, you know, Psycho Sid would show up or Jerry Lawler would show up. And they'd always get the heat off whoever was leaving by bringing in someone new. And they managed to keep that momentum going. Their run of pay-per-views from 98 and 99 are some of the most like critically well-received shows at the time. And he wouldn't even announce a card ahead of time. He'd just say, Heat Wave this Sunday. But you know it's going to be awesome because he's going to give you surprises and he's going to give you, you know, wild matches and you get all the different types of brawls you want to see. So they kind of worked it to their advantage. I mean, yeah, one of the ones we mentioned there was Jerry Lawler showing up one of the days when the, the lights came off and it came back on. And there was Jerry Lawler in the ECW ring. Were you shocked to see him there? Well, no, not really, because I'm pretty sure Vince would have told him, you're going over to ECW, it looks good for our company. Mm. It makes us seem a bit cool to put you over there. But I can't imagine Jerry Lawler was keen. You know when wrestlers believe what they're saying and you can kind of feel like, yeah, there's a little bit extra oomph in this promo. When he says, this bingo hall ought to be built out of toilet paper because there's nothing in it but shit. (laughs) You know he means it, but yeah, yeah, he was like, look at her, look at that slut over there. Like he was, it was honestly one of the scariest things ever because heel Jerry Lawler in an ECW environment is pretty much like Satan on his day off like with no handcuffs or no consideration I'm like duh that's like looking into the abyss so you blind yourself if you see it for too long like but yeah I mean Tommy Dreamer it seemed to be a bit of a sympathetic figure in most of this documentary because he constantly got underpaid got the shit beat out of him and he wasn't being caned in the testicles he was being caned on the back oh what Jerry does to Tommy Dreamer is so gross because i know it's intentional i like i don't know we've not done an episode on jerry lawler but i feel out of all the wrestlers we've not done episodes on i know quite a bit you think he's a mean guy oh he's a vile nasty work of yeah he's a a vile toad i would call him what did he do to tommy dreamer that uh, irked you so much then so is it a kendo stick yes or singapore cane whatever you want or singapore cane he hits him in the testicles causing like full full force causing tommy dreamer to literally like curl up into a ball and start like rocking and then when he moves on to his front to protect himself jerry lawler smacks him on the back of the head with the kendo stick yeah then he said he regained consciousness and jim Cornette hit him with a tennis racket in the back of the head and his testicle nearly ruptured and he had to pull a few cc's of blood out of his testicle because it had swollen up so much and that is your nightmare testicle scenario for this week, folks. Thanks very much for tuning to IT Wrestling. <laughs> My testicles are sore. Are yours? But yeah, he got sent to hospital for that. 
And yeah. Jerry Lawler, as far as I've seen, is one of the safest wrestlers when he wants to be. Oh, he had a big old laugh about it. He was like, uh. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I am 100% sure he did that intentionally. Well, he there's no way. exactly what he was doing. You can't hit someone with a kendo stick prone, lying down in the testicles. Like, well, unless they're wearing a cup, there is no way to, to protect that. It's going to hurt. I mean, I reckon there's ways, though, of minimizing injury. Like, I'm, it's not normal to have to hit someone so hard that, you know, no. pints of blood have to be removed from their testicles. Like, I'm sure there's a way, you know, you hit them at the leg or the stomach and oh, you avoid God. the actual Fucking genital area. Horrible. Like, I'm sure there are ways of doing it. And if uh. anyone would know that, it would be someone like Jerry Lawler, who grew up in wrestling. Mm. Uh, yeah, it's, it wouldn't surprise me at all. It seemed like uncharacteristically violent for something that he would do. I think he was sending a message and proving a point. Yeah, absolutely. But I mean, you kind of get to the point here now in ECW, where we're into like the late 90s, and WWE is almost mirroring with a kind of a shined up mirror almost of what ECW was doing. They were doing the the kind of the sexy stuff with the women. They were doing the the wild, more physical brawls. The characters were more about real-life personas with the volume turned up a little bit. There was swearing on TV. There was alcohol. There was crotch-grabbing. There was a lot of that kind of rebellious spirit that was coming now from one of the big companies. And it kind of felt like... I don't think it made ECW redundant, but it certainly made things harder from them. Because Vince is like, well, we always had an attitude. We just didn't necessarily stay it. But it's like, yeah, you started putting them on the roster and the payroll, and now you're pretty much doing their stuff. And this documentary, to its credit, is literally showing side by side. It's like, 911 attacks Santa. Next year, Steve Austin attacks Santa. Tables start getting used in ECW. Tables start getting used in WWE. And you have, like, Cactus Jack... And Mick Foley, he's doing stuff that he pretty much did in ECW, just doing it in WWE now at a bigger stage. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think it's right for people to be like, you know, that WWE just nicked it? Or did they own it and make it their own thing from what you've seen? Both. I think they changed it enough. They made it mainstream enough, I think. Yeah, they, that's that, exactly. That's it. They made it accessible to a much larger audience than ECW did. ECW was counterculture. It, it did these things at a time when no one else was. But the thing is, is that you can't stay counterculture forever by doing the exact same things. As we mm. say, you've got to bring in new stuff. If you're going to bring in new stuff, you have to get rid of the old. Why not pass it on to a company that's just going through a massive cultural shift, mm. changing its target audience to one that happens to be exactly the same <laughs> as their current target audience, yeah. but bigger? It's really hard, though, because ECW... When they were being rebellious in counterculture, they were being rebellious in counterculture and kind of capturing the spirit of the time. And when the bigger company does that, you can't go and say, right, time to shift course and do something different because then you won't be holding up a mirror to the time. You're not in the spirit of the time. Then you're kind of getting into uncharted territory. Mm -hmm. And while I think Heyman was very, very good at kind of figuring out what people were thinking about at the time quicker than Vince, I don't think he was necessarily able to predict the future and anticipate... Maybe what they want now is more technical stuff and less hardcore. He kind of doubled down a lot on the hardcore stuff as the company started to have a lot more serious problems. He said that it was like the dot-com industry and that the pay scale got insane. Yeah, I heard the Dudleys wanted a whole dollar raise and he said, can't afford that, sorry, but fuck that's the, off. That's the principle though, isn't it, for him? Like, you know, you, you, you're, you're negotiating with them now, that means you're gone. 
you know that's again very similar to uh startup culture isn't it if you ask for even a dollar pay rise it's like well maybe you're not the right fit for this brand mm. it's sad because like you know there was still in 2000 and 2001 when the company was you know had like you know it, it got onto tv it did get onto tv and that was something that they should be credited for they got that mainstream exposure but in many ways it kind of it ended up being their death sentence because you've got guys kind of coming in expecting, well, I'm a top guy, you're on TV, so I'm a 300 grand a year kind of guy, and Heyman couldn't do that. And this is when you start hearing the stories about people like Spike Dudley, who said he was eating tuna and rice seven days a week. Yeah. $75 a night. No wonder he was so small. $75? Nothing. That's not even 50 quid over here. No. And you saw what they did to Spike Dudley, right? You mm-hmm. saw some of the... Can you tell the folks about some of the things that Spike Dudley had happened to yeah. him? Yeah, Spike Dudley's job is to be thrown through stuff. <laughs> and, yeah, get hurt nastily. The nicest thing that happened to Spike Dudley was him being thrown out of the ring and being caught by the crowd and being yeah, you know, carried through. Yeah, not being fun when he got piled rove through two tables while he had his leg in a cast after it being broken. $75 a night. And that's where it came down to is that he had to rely on a lot of the younger wrestlers who maybe didn't have families or like there's a guy who was like saying, yeah, I didn't have a mortgage so I didn't mind if I get paid or not. Some of the other guys, they had families to feed so you can see where they might want to leave. Paul couldn't delegate. He kept secrets from everyone. He aged horribly you can during this see period. him age in front of your very eyes by watching this documentary he looks way older in like 2000 than he does now like in the documentary he looks like a young vibrant mm. albeit bald man he looks like 15 years younger and they cut back yeah five year younger self even like two or three years before and he looks like they say he slept two hours a night at yeah. that point in time and i believe it and even though everyone else is chipping in paul wanted to book every pay-per-view and every TV show. He wanted to manage all the characters of the roster, all the storylines. He had to have the final say, and he would edit every... Imagine that if Vince McMahon was editing Raw on SmackDown. Could you imagine that? Like, But Heyman wanted to have the final say on everything. And it was too much. Like He couldn't do all of that. And at the same time, he's out there trying to negotiate deals to get the money to keep the company afloat. And he's in Hollywood trying to get movie deals, and he's trying to get you know all this stuff going on. It's insane. Like, he did get them onto national TV, but I think the effort it took him to do that, that the company was already dead by the time yeah. it got on TV. Yeah. Like, they get the national TV deal, and Vince says he called him up, and he said, first of all, congratulations, and second of all, change your show and do it now, because you have to change. You will not be able to get anywhere with this network by doing what you're doing currently. And the first thing Paul did was renee on the TV station's deal and not give him the show that they promised because he didn't like the shoot they did, so he just put on a long Rob Van Dam match instead. Wow. <laughs> but, like, they got video games. Yes. Two acclaimed video games came out. Were they any good? <laughs> they were reskinned versions of WWF Attitude. Oh, which, wow. if you remember, was the very unfun one that we played for our How To Video Games episodes. But they had action figures as well. They had an ECW magazine. Like They, on the surface, were a very legitimate company at this point. They had TV, pay-per-views, video games, action figures, magazine. Like, that's that's a thriving company, right? Sold out, sh- sold out shows everywhere. Mm. Like, he even did really innovative stuff around this time. He actually had a group of, of fans who were super fans. He went to all the shows. And he said, right, you're the street team now. Okay, because you guys love the show so much. Here's a camcorder. Film it. It'll be fan cam. We'll sell it on the website. 
and you can go out and hand out flyers for the show. And like a lot of people, like Gabe Sapolsky, who's now like he runs Evolve and is a big name in indie wrestling. A lot of these people got their start through just handing out flyers and being Paul Heyman's kind of eyes and ears on the ground filming shows and all that stuff it was another way to make money so cool it's like innovative yeah it's like. really cool two weeks after they got onto TNN the network which had picked up ECW for a year they lost their world champion and their tag team champions so they lost Taz and the Dudley boys they went to WWE pretty much straight away and this thing that they said which is really like quite true about the problem was that the individuals were growing faster than the company mm. like they were outgrowing them so there was no real kind of point to them Taz said he felt that he was being complacent at this point in time if he stayed with the company so being on the network had its own unique set of issues they said that they never once promoted them they never had a TV ad for them a newspaper ad they were worried they were being used primarily as a lead-in for the roller derby show that was on TV (laughs) called Roller Jam they came up with a very unique way to come up with a way of shifting the blame because they weren't allowed to use a lot of the ECW staples like using the word hate or a lot of the kind of edgier stuff that they would normally do on TV. So they came up with a character, and one that I thought you'd be a big fan of, called Cyrus, who was the representative of TNN and the network, who would come out and be like, the network is not happy, ladies and gentlemen. They want this certain person to be champion or a certain match to go down, and it became like a scapegoat and a way to shift the story away from ECWS to tame down a little bit to, oh, we've been made to do this. I love Cyrus's name. First and foremost, great name. Cyrus the Virus, he was known yep. as. <laughs> I love his look. He looks slimy and corporate, <laughs> but in a very kind of late 90s, early 2000s way, like a proper slimy businessman you wouldn't want to spend time with. I kind of feel like Frankie Muniz at the time should have been in a movie to take him <laughs> down a peg or two, absolutely. But like, even though at this time you had a lot of people that were leaving, there were some fabulous like wrestlers and fabulous wrestling going on in ECW. You had the likes of Jerry Lynn and Tajiri, Rhino, Super Crazy. And probably one of the biggest names that was around ECW at the time was Rob Van Dam, who's somebody you got to see a fair bit of. Mostly stoned, he seemed to be in this documentary. Always. They were just kind of embroiled, it felt like, in constant drama at the time. The big one was Mike Awesome, who we saw wrestling Masato Tanaka earlier on. He decided to leave the company and go to WCW because he wasn't getting pe- get paid. And then, because he's going with the belt, which, as we now realize, taking a belt is literally worse than home invasion in the world mm-hmm. of wrestling. So yeah, he's taking a belt so they'd have a federal injunction. And let's see if you can make sense of this. To get around Mike Awesome who was a WCW-contracted wrestler, to get the belt back to ECW, they had Taz, who was a WWF-contracted wrestler, beat him at a live event. So WCW guy got beaten by a WWF guy for the ECW belt. So the ECW belt could get brought back and Taz could drop it to someone like Tommy Dreamer. Wild idea. Why not just make a new belt? (laughs) Because then you you end the lineage. No, you don't. Just say it's the same belt. Yeah, we we stripped him of the belt. Yeah. Here's our cool new design. Here's the new one. It doesn't even have to be a new design. It can be exactly the same. It's so funny because like I remember like growing up in the Attitude Era because like I remember thinking like, oh the belt got thrown down like I remember being like kind of like scared like oh there's gonna be a terrorist attack like you know <laughs> and it's funny to tell you now like when I'm kind of like and then you believe this Joe she she got the belt and she put it in the bin mm. yeah and you're not shocked I don't see why no I'm happy. <laughs> 
But yeah, it got to the point now where people like Tommy Dreamer, he said like he was getting the belt because they knew he wasn't going to leave the company. And Heyman was kind of spending less and less time actually running the company. Tommy was actually running. Yeah, because he was busy helping Vince out backstage. Mm. Well, like Tommy was like, he was booking the last couple of shows. Heyman didn't even show up to the last couple of shows, apparently. And in the end, the advertisers wouldn't get on board and they're getting thrown off the air off of TNN and not helped by the fact that Paul Heyman literally went on TV going, hey, network, I dare you to throw me off the air. I've been thinking about that. And I think that was very intentional. Yeah, I think he wanted to get out of the contract. Yeah, I think he knew that if he pushed them to it... He could sue them. That too. But also within the brand of ECW, it's a lot cooler for the company to be taken off air because they were, you know, either dead to or because the show was too violent or too much for the network. As opposed to not successful enough. As opposed to, yeah, we've run out of money. We've mismanaged the business. All our good talent has left. And that's a sad thing is that ECW and TNN, even though that's that's that was my entryway into ECW, it really was like, it's there was great stuff there. Like there was great wrestling there. But in terms of like ECW and what people believe and what it, what it stood for and what it was, it is in many ways a shell of its former self. Mm. Like you had, like now looking back as a grown up, I can kind of be like, wow, they had some real just blatant attempts to just replace stuff. Like the Dudleys were gone, but now there was the Baldies. For fuck's sake. You know what I mean? Like because you know the Dudleys, we talked about the Dudleys in our episode that they were like the monster heel, absolute dirt worst. And once they were gone, it's like there was this massive void it's like we need this monster group of evil men so they had like there was three baldies like there was three dudleys like uh, and, wow. you know and they they put people through tables and they like got through tables yeah but like they their whole gimmick was that like people paid money to see the baldies get beat up and don't get me wrong i love the baldies and they have a straight a banging theme song and anyone who comes out to the ring with a cigar is okay in my book but even still it's like you could tell that they were treading water ecw was a series of Oftentimes it feels like unrelated short-term successes kind of crammed in a pressure cooker. They struck gold so many times in so many different places. But it was just sad that when a push came to shove, they couldn't put on a TV show that was violent enough to appease the fans or mainstream enough to get any new eyes on it. Like the, the ratings started low and they went lower. You know, it was the Alan Partridge formula. Mm. You know, that was the reality of it. And even though they made ratings that would have, you know, people like TNA would have killed for in recent years, at the time, WWE and WCW were still doing phenomenal business. Well, WWE was doing crazy business. And the reality was is that the only reason they put ECW on the network was so TNN could see, oh, will wrestling fit on the network? Oh, it does. Let's give Vince McMahon a hundred million dollars. Wow. Which sounds made up, doesn't it? I mean, it does sound made up, but that is how much money that they got. That, and then this, of course, they made a billion dollars this year with their rights fees, and that was $100 million they made back then, so, you know. And they were given that offer because ECW worked within the network. Well, yeah, because they figured that it'll we, we can structure our programming around wrestling. They were worried that it was the Nashville network and wrestling would stick out like a sore thumb, and it's like, well, if ECW can you know fit on here and sponsors aren't going to drop off, well, then... WWE, which is a prestige brand and not rinky-dink like ECW. And that's really shame because I think that TV show did more to further the idea that ECW was this rinky-dink show. Because when I first heard about ECW, it was tapes. And it was like, oh, someone has seen this match or someone has heard this about this. Like We heard stories. But when it was there, plain as day in front of you, and it's like them trying quite hard to do the, the hardcore stuff in an hour show with handcuffs on them... It really damaged the brand, I think. Because mm. when ECW went out of business in 2001, 
like a month or two later, WCW went out of business as well. Oh, and it's just so like, rough. yeah, it kind of felt like no one cared about ECW's demise because everyone was talking about the big company, WCW, demising as well. That's why WWE were using ECW trademarks for their invasion storyline without actually owning them and no one cared. Wow. It ended really in kind of a bit of a, a bit of a turmoil and a downward spiral. Most of the wrestlers found out that the company was out of business when they tuned into Raw and Paul Heyman was suddenly on commentary. That's so. When we covered this in his episode, but that is so unbelievably shitty. Mm, it's like, so horrible. Rhino, who was the last ECW champion, was like, I was just going onto the website, man, and just refreshing, hoping to see there was going to be some new live events added. And like, he's the champion. The champion should be refreshing on his. We're rest. a family. Yeah. Everyone works together. I wanted to see his potential. Yeah, sure. Fuck off, mate. It's really sad. ECW did die with a real whimper because you know it had its last show was just a house show and it was kind of like everyone kind of knew it was it was over and they just kind of had a bit of a send off in the ring. Paul wasn't there on the last show. It was sad. It really was, and I kind of feel like it's the unfairness of it kind of going under when it did really added to that kind of underground feel to it. And that's when this documentary came out. It was kind of like, yeah, ECW deserves a proper send off and. It did inevitably get several rehashes. We had the reunion shows. Some were great, some weren't great. We had a lot of angles, most of which were terrible. Every company has tried to do an ECW reunion or spin-off. I mean, even when we were doing How To Wrestling at the pay-per-view reviews, we had the ECW team of the Dudleys and Tommy Dreamer and Rhino against the Wyatt family. And it's like, you know, even then they were still trying to rehash ECW. I kind of feel like we could talk about ECW rehashes as a completely separate episode, but I want to know from your viewpoint, from watching it, what do you think killed that company in the end? Oh, it's death by a thousand cuts, I think. <laughs> hmm. That's a really good way of putting it. I would, I would tend to agree with the thousand cuts, yeah. Because it isn't, it isn't just one thing. It's, it's Paul Heyman overworking himself. It's him, on the one hand, calling it a family and taking advantage of his talent, but also not keeping them involved when they comes to die that's like, emotionally exhausting is yeah. to keep up that level because a lot of people said that they thought paul burnt out devon actually said he thought paul just gave up i don't think he gave up i mm. don't think paul Heyman does that maybe i might sound like a proper weird conspiracy theorist mm. but i think vince mcmahon and paul Heyman worked together to bring down ecw and i think they worked very carefully to do it in a way that wouldn't make it look like that's what they're doing. Right, as in kind of, there was probably a point in time, because that was it, Rob Van Dam said in the documentary, so there was a point in time where he worked out that he couldn't he couldn't be paid all the money he was owed. Yeah. It, was, it was not actually possible. And I'm sure there was a point when Heyman or someone looked at the books and went, like, you are gone beyond the point mm. where you could ever make this a viable business yeah. and all it is at that point is damage control yeah so let's find a way where we can own the narrative yeah which is, they definitely did get the trademark sold to where they're meant to be sold and money be made and you know Heyman went through personal bankruptcy you know That's there was the company so bankruptcy there was a lot of that but it's kind of like 
if you see it's one of those things that like because we're anxious people we think about that we're like oh there's no way and then you like i was reading for season three of the atr podcast the, the court proceedings of Heyman. like he didn't show up to his first personal bankruptcy Jesus. hearings thing then when he did he was like my total assets i have is i have like a couple hundred grand loan from my parents and i have two hundred dollars of clothes that was my personal assets because he lived in his mom's house the whole time he did it yeah so you didn't give a shit. Mm. And so it's kind of like, if you don't care and you don't view bankruptcy or your personal standing as the end of the world, you, you were confident in yourself that you could bounce back from anything, then all they had to do was damage control. I think I would tend to agree with you there that it's, let's let it die in a as respectable a way as possible. To keep it, you know, we don't want to ruin it forever because Vince obviously is going to buy it and he wants to do things with it. Yeah. I think, I think Vince knew he was going to buy ECW way before lots of people think he did. Yeah, I think in 1996 when he was, or whenever he first started paying Heyman, it's like, this is investment, I eventually will own this. Yeah, I think so. I think he could probably tell, I think he could tell that Paul Heyman was a great leader and he was fantastic at fostering this motivated core group of people who, you know, fought together no matter how little they were paid for something they believe in. Mm. And I think Vince knew that he didn't quite have the business skills required to keep it running long term, but that he had this idea for something really good. Mm. And I think Vince, you know, he's about as far away from the cultural vein in society <laughs> as possible to be. Yes. So I think he really valued that and knew that's a person that's a company i've got to keep a real close eye it's got on. value yeah. it's got value i mm. can absorb that when i need to which he did and i think the whole thing about getting it on television and getting them all the pay-per-views and everything and of course vince was willing to help and hand over money because he's got lots of lots of money to spare yeah and he probably realized this is going to work out really well for me it did when i'm not to blame for it going wrong but i can benefit from its failure well if this dvd alone made the investment worthwhile let alone all the angles and talent and you know, spin-off shows and brands he got out of it. I, I, I listed down here all the people they interviewed, the reason that they thought ECW was died. Bubba Ray Dudley said that it was too violent, ultimately. Vince said that the style was too dangerous and that the injuries caught up on them. And they mentioned that a few times, like Rob Van Dam was on top of the world and he broke his leg. And when you have injuries happening with your top stars, it's not viable. Mm -hmm. Jericho said it was simply bad business. Rhino said that Paul burnt out and he wasn't the same in the end. Devon thought that he gave up. General consensus from a lot of people seemed to be that mismanagement was the word. And then Paul Heyman said, the reason that ECW went out of business is because we didn't get another network on time. Because mm -hmm. we didn't get another network, we could not fulfill our obligations to our license holders. And if we got on another network in time, Everyone in this room will be working for me or working for Vince McMahon and anyone who tells you different doesn't know what they're talking about or is full of shit. Oh, it sounds like Trump. I never think that Paul Heyman like tries to kid himself because he does talk about, I don't talk about the past, I move forward, what's in the past in the past. But really there it feels like he's like proper. He doesn't want anyone to buy the line that he caused the company to go out of business. No. It was... The, but them again also like ECW's whole the big guy out there spitting down a little ECW that's why it went out of business and I'd be willing to bet that all these guys he worked with I think he told them all a different reason why yes. it failed I think I think the reason that D <laughs> the Dudleys think he gave up is because that's what he told them yeah and he also told the Dudley boys if you don't forget Joe that he had given them the trademarks to the name the Dudley boys and Bubba Ray and Devon and he didn't he sold that too yep. and there's a you know what you type in ECW money owed or wrestler a lot of wrestlers most of which don't tow the company line or aren't under legends contract to WWE 
have got a lot of shitty things to say about Paul Heyman and the money that he owes them. And it's a lot easier to control a narrative of how your company failed if you make absolutely sure that everyone who worked in it can't disagree on exactly the one way it did fail. Mm. And it's all, all of them are based on truth. Yeah. None, no one's wrong, per se. You're right, it's a thousand cuts, it's all those things. Cuts. But the main <laughs> thing is, he wouldn't want anyone to be able to all get together and go, oh, but this is the thing that really brought it down. Because as soon as you have a narrative that's not controlled by him... Mm. That's loss of control. ECW isn't cool anymore. It's lost its value. What's the point of him selling it to Vince? I think ECW, though, as a brand, has probably got little to no value left at all, really, after all the reunion shows and all of the kind of rehashes. And, you know, now it's all there in plain sight in the network and you've not got the cool music and you've not got, you know, all the licensed stuff being used. It's lost a lot of its glow. Like when me and Adam, we were we reviewed an ECW pay-per-view for the ITR podcast and I was shocked when I watched it. It's like, wow, you've really, like, pulled the curtain back a little bit too much here you've you've taken away the magician's tricks you've you've not accentuated the positives and hid the negatives yeah. as paul likes to say but i've been very interested to talk to you about ecw and i'm glad we got a lot of the kind of stuff about the treatment of women and the violence and stuff kind of out in the forefront and straight away kind of dealt with that and i commend you for being able to talk about this shit at all even knowing that pervasive, gross culture that was there. So, amazing. Oh, well, same to you. It's a hard thing to have to look back at something that you loved and enjoyed as an eight-year-old child and accept the fact that it may have slightly fucked you up. I've made a bit (laughs) of a career out of it at this point, I guess. But I was going to ask you, in this modern day and age, I know you've alluded to NXT a little bit, but like, what do you think are the long-term benefits of ECW? Like, what good, what positives do you think that that brand brought, long-term speaking? Not short-term and not necessarily just capturing the zeitgeist as it did so well. But the legacy of ECW, if we're to talk about the beneficial things or the good things that it did or the positive that it brought to wrestling, what do you think some of those things might be? There's so many. Uh, okay, triple threats. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's true, yeah. Didn't exist until ECW, although it was called a three-way dance, which is wonderfully gay. I oh, love, I that. love that. I want to bring back that term for You it, and I are going to be in a bit of a three-way dance. It doesn't matter who the third is. Like, oh, wow. <laughs> yes, I'm, I'm tuning in on Sunday. <laughs> I think proper long-form storytelling Mm. between characters that are feuding, keeping them apart just enough, but bringing them together at the right moments Mm. to tell a story. I think that has had a massive, massive impact. I think as well that's another part of the Attitude Era, which maybe comes from ECW rather than... I think previously I always thought that that was like Vince Russo who was responsible for that and said it's Vince Russo was influenced by ECW. Yeah, and I think I would definitely say, I'm not sure if you agree, but no ECW, no Attitude Era. Yeah, absolutely. Unquestionably. Yeah, 100%. Can you imagine Vince trying to do that without Paul (laughs) Heyman having his finger on the pulse? Yeah, no way. He couldn't have done it. Which is why I think this whole back end side of things was a lot more messy than people maybe think and it's mm. a nice easy story to be like oh yeah Vince just came along at the end and gave them some money up. no not that no I don't think it was that yeah <laughs> I mean are you shocked by all these positive things you're saying about ECW because the people were kind of queuing up to this thinking that you're gonna see no value in this brand I mean did you think it was this important part of wrestling history yes no I did mm. because when I was growing up the only friends I had that watched wrestling were massively into the Attitude Era. And I don't know if they watched ECW, didn't know about that existing until we did this podcast, so I couldn't say. But I was, you know, a teenager around that time. I know what it was like to be in society when counterculture was 
kind of becoming mainstream but still cool. Yeah, it wasn't cringe just yet. Yeah. And wrestling now still, I think, thrives on an element of that. It still needs to be counterculture. It's so on the nose in ECW. Someone messaged us on Facebook and like literally listened to the commentary. There's like Joey Styles going, we're not like the other guys. You're not going to see this on WCW. Like, all right, if they're so terrible, shut up about them then. Ignore them. But that was it. It was part of the narrative. (laughs) But exactly, that's it. They want you to compare them to the other companies because (laughs) it makes the audience feel like they're part of something special and unique. And that's, Mm. as human beings, what we are driven by, we want to be special, unique snowflakes. We want to feel like we're part of something cool and underground. It, there's just something very appealing about that, I think, generally to people. Do you think there ever will be another organization that comes along like that and is like completely rips up the rule book, maybe by going hardcore, maybe by doing something different? Or do you, do you see that happening in wrestling? Does it need to happen in yes, wrestling? And yes, it needs to happen. And it's not. I don't think it's going to be hardcore. I think if anything, it will go the other direction. Mm. I think. I guess it is in some ways already. If you look at the likes of progress and mm-hmm. whatnot, I mean, they are kind of taking it back that other direction. I guess. I think if we're ever going to get another company, anything to do with ECW in terms of the innovation, the counterculture, feeding off of an underground of people who aren't represented and need something that they're not being given. Mm. I think it's going to go the other way. I think it's going to go in favour of women. Mm. And maybe, like, you know, gay male wrestling fans. I think it's going to be... I think you could do it, but include the element of dance, theatre, music, the theatrical side, drag, burlesque, all of the other... other Many, many other countercultures that wrestling fans are a huge fan of. Yeah. Bring it all together, make it inclusive and diverse, and suddenly you've got this cool, edgy... It's not been done before wrestling show that's nothing like has ever existed and needs to happen and by existing will shake up other promotions hang on a second you tell me you can have an edgy cutting edge idea and it doesn't involve beating up women and hating gay people what the fuck is this some people think I'm crazy (laughs) the other thing I want to ask you at the end of this is we saw a lot of clips I've shown you a lot of bits and bobs we saw some matches we saw a lot of like incidents of ECW I think is the best way of putting them and of course the footage of the documentary itself are there any wrestlers who appeared in this who you feel intrigued by and would like to know more about? Yeah, loads. Uh, Toby Dreamer. I always thought he was really boring sounding. He seemed like the generic white male character of a video game, but of ECW. I mean, he is. I mean, he is, but I see the... like That's really important. You need to have like, player one. In he, it, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Considering ECW's audience, which were, you know, young white men. With goatees. With, <laughs> it's very easy. With terrible like, clothes and goatees. It's honestly, yeah, like for like for all the, the ball rednecks who were shouting at their TV at yeah. Steve Austin, there was like, you know, a lot of us in track pants and yeah. ECW t-shirts going, go on, Tommy. Like, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And Raven as well, but for like a different subculture. Yeah, yeah. You've got... Yeah, you need someone who the audience can relate to. So I'd love to learn more about Tommy Dreamer. He sounds like a really nice guy. Mm. I'd love to learn more about Raven as well. Mm. Because I know very little about him other than he abducted Sandman's boy. (laughs) 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 
Sabu, I would like to see more of because I've loved what little wrestling of his I've seen. That, I mean, that was all you had seen was the stuff mm-hmm. I'd shown you. You'd never seen Sabu before. Well, no, I've seen bits of Sabu wrestling. I'm pretty sure for some of the things you've watched for the Ashley Road podcast, I swear he or he's been on in the background or something while you've just been watching for fun. Probably for fun, yeah. I've definitely seen his comfy pants before, though. <laughs> I think I may have just been like, those, those are the ones I want. <laughs> <laughs> Get those for me. And Rob Van Dam, I love him. Oh, I, yeah? I just know he's, if we ever do an episode on him, he's going to make my absolute favourite. Because mm. I just, I I think he's an amazing wrestler. I love that his character in ECW was, he's nice. <laughs> I love that that seems to be him in real life as yeah. well. Like, he seems to have no beef with anyone. Yeah, yeah. I love that he just gets high all the time. <laughs> I find it fascinating that he manages to wrestle while high. Because and be interviewed for this documentary while definitely high. <laughs> The thing about ECW, what? Rob, wake up, like, come on. Uh, yeah, there's loads of really, really interesting characters, I think, who I'd definitely like to see more of. Well, we have had a look at the history, the culture, the stories, and the figures involved in Extreme Championship Wrestling. Now let's head all over and have a look at you guys' tweets and your Facebook posts about ECW. This one's from Matthew at Matty Poo. Only seen an occasional glimpses of tapes from everybody else's big brother, ECW was the thing of myth and legends. I legit thought that Sabu, Rob Van Dam, and Sandman were superhuman when I was a kid. <laughs> Did you ever have any kind of like... Because like, you, you see all the wrestlers do all these really violent, scary things, and... I think if I'd seen that as a child, I'd have thought they were superhuman as well. For me, all it did when I watched ECW was made me realise that Mick Foley was not the only person who could do that type of thing. I thought it was Mick Foley and Terry Funk. Those are the two. Like, they're the hardcore guys. And they can wallop the shit out of each other. But then it was just realising, like, oh, wait, no, you can be doing these crazy high spots and also be doing, like, moonsaults and be really athletic and, you know, being springboards and flips and have all these different styles. So, yeah, it kind of made me just feel like that it wasn't just one or two wrestlers who I thought were superhuman it made me feel that most wrestlers were superhuman <laughs> love this username this is from Epoise at Cheese Tom Epoise is my favourite cheese oh very good good job Tom what ECW did right is alive and well in wrestling today engagement with the fans exciting stories and innovation in wrestling ECW in 2018 would not be the same as ECW in 1998 mm. but companies like that do exist today that's true and we've mentioned a few of them I mean I would say taking that ethos if you look at EVE or Progress or ICW here in the UK I'm sure in America you've got several indies that will fit into that mind frame I mean you've got indies that are run by Gabe Sapolsky who learned from Paul Heyman and that kind of mentality so yeah I think that's definitely true I think it was really funny was in around 2009 or 10 there was rumours that Heyman was going to get brought into TNA and everyone's like oh he's going to make it ECW make it hardcore and everyone's like are you going to bring back like you know Raven and the Dudleys and all that and he's like the one thing he said about it he goes if I was brought in, and that's if I was brought in, the first thing I would do is if you're over the age of 40, I'd cut your fucking head off. <laughs> and I was like, oh shit. So like, it's not it's not about what was, was good. It, for him, it's about what's new, what's fresh, exactly. and what's young. That's what I don't understand. There seems to be a lot of ECW fans. They who, miss the point. They totally miss the point. <laughs> they're, they're, they're marks to the, what's the phrase? Jabroni... <laughs> marks without a life like taking the mark to see I don't know <laughs> they work themselves into yeah, a shoe there we go okay. exactly H-H. missing the point ECW isn't about 
just the extreme violence. If you think that you've fallen for their branding, that, that's <laughs> it. It's about it was about the innovation and yeah. trying new things and the counterculture. Mm, it would be much much different now, yeah, if it was ever to come around again. And honestly, if he was gonna try and do something like that now, I'm pretty sure all the ECW fans of ye old who loved the extreme violence side of things would hate <laughs> it because I'm pretty sure he'd bring in something really new. Well, yeah, I mean, I hate to break it to us, but all of us who are edgy ECW fans back in the day, I mean. I was watching it when I was 10 or something years old. If you were the target demo, you're in your 50s or yeah. 40s now. Sorry, your tastes aren't cool. Yeah, you're not the taste that a Paul Heyman or an innovator actually cares for. They care about maybe those people who are, you know, in their your teens. Your kids. Your kids. Yeah. They got your kids, Marty. They your kids. That's who they want. <laughs> He's got to market wrestling to them. <laughs> Like, I'm 27 and I consider myself too old to come up with new, innovative, cool ideas. For oh, kids today. don't say that now. Come on. This next one's from Mark at Calf and a Half. Please don't show Joe any new Jack. He's such a fucking scumbag. Represents pretty much everything I hate about the company and its fans back in the day. So, yeah, I mean, I tried to show Joe New Jack and the best I got was a little bit of the fan cam showing him beating up the Baldies so you could hear, you know, do a little bit of natural-born killers or whatever, and, you know, I explained it. We saw some shoot interviews with New Jack, and he obviously was included in footage of jumping off things and whatnot. I mean, I'm not sure what there is a whole lot to say about New Jack, other than I'm pretty sure I could take a lot of things that he said and done, and you'd probably fucking hate him. And I don't think he's got the Sandman benefit of a nice, cuddly ending to his story to, you know, he's done some really fucked up shit. He hates Jerry Lawler. Yeah. And so he has one point. He's got three book. justifiable homicides, or four last I checked, mm. and couldn't appear at the ECW One Night Stand show because there was an outstanding warrant for his arrest in the city of New York. So I don't know if we'll ever do How To New Jack, but feels like the network, the universe, and wrestling fans at large don't want you to know much about him. I tried my best, that's all I'll say. <laughs> Next one from Frank at Frank Mullis. I still have fond memories of holding the TV antenna just right to make sure I could get a clear view of the show and loving all the guys on it. It was so different. That went a long way for me, a really long way. Yeah, I mean, difference is, is absolute king in, in wrestling. Exactly, you know? which is why if there was, like we're saying, any kind of Paul Heyman doing a new innovative ECW kind of show, it would be different, so not the old stuff. Like, I think as well, you know, I mentioned that ECW is where I kind of maybe learned that you didn't have to have a massive arena for you to have a great match or, you know, a, a compelling story. I kind of feel if I hadn't watched any ECW as a kid, I wouldn't have given any of like you know ring of honor or any of the indies or tna a chance when i started watching and expanding my wrestling diet via the wrestling channel on sky back in the day so yeah i think it's kind of important in that sense as well i think it prepped a lot of us to kind of see a smaller company that was still you know part of the western wrestling culture that you could maybe get be of an entryway i mean i became a you know misato tanaka i went to see wrestling in japan so i could see misato tanaka that's like I, I went out of our way. Me and Paddy, my friend, we went. We were so jet lagged, but he was wrestling. We had to see him. Like, that was just had to happen. It's not because we wanted to see Japanese wrestling or go to Karukan Hall. We just wanted to see Masato Tanaka. That wow. was how important it was. Next up from Nick at Handsprings 777. As a child who had to sneak to watch the bad wrestling show in Ooh. WWF, I knew if my mum caught me watching ECW, even the tame type for TV, I would have been killed. But, yeah. 
get amazing, incredible moments from Sabu, Raven, and Rob. Van, damn, made that risk totally worth it. Yeah, there's a definite risk and reward there. And even though my parents knew that I watched WWF and Raw, I would always switch the channel if I heard them coming in. Kind of go, oh no, it's on an ad break for fear of what they might see. So yeah, ECW, that definitely, if I heard movement upstairs, the channel went off. Like, I'm like, I am not fucking, don't ruin this for yourself, Kevin. <laughs> Wrestling's all you got. Like, it's maybe be Star Wars and Street Sharks, Street Sharks and nothing else if they find you guys. <laughs> <laughs> Finally, from Marked Out, the matches for the most part do not hold up well, but sadly for Joe, she will never understand how it felt to live in the ECW era. Words cannot describe it. The storylines were just so ahead of their time. Time. I felt bad. Like we're we're watching NXT week to week at the moment, and like some great stories there. Yeah. And I kind of feel like, you know, when in this documentary came out in two thousand and four, you kind of look at that and kind of go, "Fucking hell!" They told the story over like you know a year, or they did all this really innovative character building stuff. Like motherfuck, you know, you got a lot of what was great about ECW on your modern product, like on the main show and in different companies. Cyrus, the guy we we're talking about, amazing mind for wrestling. He's running Impact Wrestling at the what? moment. Yeah. And he's doing a fucking fabulous job of it as well. Wow. So, like, it's one of those ones. It's, it's kind of like I watched Akira the other night for Cinema Swirl. And it's kind of like, it's a great movie and all that. But Sam didn't enjoy it as much. And part of that was because he has now since seen so many of the great things that that movie did in other movies. That mm. it feels like the movie itself, while very much to be appreciated, is less special than if he'd seen it when it had come out or in the peak of its like kind of cult status. And I feel ECW is a lot like that. And I, once again good job in being able to look past the bollocks and the bullshit and peer away the layers of fucking slime to find the good in there because you'll never be able to experience ECW. No. I can I can use my brain and imagine. Yeah. But I will never know. We can go listen to some Alice in Chains right now and pop on some flannel and sweatpants and kind of get a bit of an ECW vibe going on in here. But yeah, it kind of... Also, I'm, I'm not a white man aged <laughs> 10 to... 35. Have you even got a goatee for I haven't even got sake. a goatee or a black wrestling t-shirt. So <laughs> it's not really for me. Yeah. I'm an outsider looking in. But there definitely is a lot to appreciate about ECW. And hopefully this has been an education for you and for some new fans. And maybe a re-evaluation for some of us old fans. I feel a lot better about ECW now. I used to feel really guilty and weird about it the last few years. I mean, you should. It is still weird and creepy. And there's a lot of shit things they did. Yes, but my racist uncle said a lot of very important things as well. In between all the slurs that he did. And we should appreciate that you gotta now take, that he's dead. you got to take the bad with the good. You can't cherry pick it. No, don't defend ECW unnecessarily, but hmm. don't make out that it didn't do anything important. Much like Vince Russo, you can't ignore the contributions of ECW to the wrestling business. Oh, they're not going to like that. No. Them. Them. Whoever they are. I don't who know. are they? The people who won't like that. Oh, they certainly won't like that. I'll tell you what they will like though, Joe. Our next episode, which is going to be a very, very exciting one. And one about a current wrestler and one of your all-time faves. Do you want to let the people know what's coming up next after ECW? Oh, I'm a bit excited, Kevin. Yeah, it feels like we're going to the zoo. Oh, Kevin Owens. It's going to be Kevin Owens. Ah, I think we're going to do an episode about me. Yeah. 
Kevin Owens, formerly known as Kevin Steen, the horrible bully and Shania Twain advocate who has been messing up everyone's life on the main WWE show for the past few years. Joe was fortunate enough to see his debut on NXT and has followed his career all the way through since then, but we're going to go back in time, back to the days when a young boy from Montreal started doing 450 splashes and been told that his body shape meant that we would never get to see him on mainstream television. It's going to be a study in character, perseverance and French Canada when we look at Kevin Steen aka Kevin Owens for how to Kevin Owens now this is obviously someone who Joe knows a lot about has an mm-hmm. appreciation of so maybe we should peel back some layers and go back into the past and some of the great storylines that have helped form Kevin Owens being one of the most important wrestlers of the current era he's been involved I think in two of my all-time favorite storylines his feud with Sami Zayn one of the best yeah and his friendship and feud with Chris Jericho again I think that was a very formative part of me being a wrestling fan I feel oh man this is great stuff because what I want to do because you are a fan and you know a lot about him I want you to curate some of your favorite Kevin Owens moments from his NXT debut until current time so you can help out those people who were like you a few years ago who are coming into this completely unawares and maybe want a little bit of homework and a backdrop to know about Kevin Owens I'll handle Kevin Steen you'll handle Kevin Owens but we want of course as always your match recommendations your promos your stories and your opinions about Montreal favorite son and Chris Jericho's least favorite human being use the hashtag how to Kevin Owens and as always if you are listening on iTunes SoundCloud or on Stitcher Radio thank you so much for tuning into another episode of how to wrestling and if you want to help out this show immeasurably you can do so by letting a friend know about how to wrestling and maybe introducing someone in your life into the world of sports entertainment and wrestling and the next episode Kevin Owens I think that's going to be a great entry point for new Mm. fans he honestly such a huge part of why I'm a wrestling fan today and he's all over the show and he's all over the show right now he's been consistently a fantastic wrestler for like what 20 years he's got a long legacy behind him it's fantastic I'm so excited to do this oh it's gonna be good and hey if you wanna help out HG Wrestling support us and come and see us live you can on the 15th of September in King's Place in London England Kevin and Joe that's me and you we're gonna be taken to the stage to have our second ever live show those who came along last year to hear all about silly gimmicks were blown away and we've been invited back to the London Podcast Festival along with the Attitude Era Podcast as the only wrestling podcast on the bill so you can come along and see us talk about wrestling's greatest love stories we're going to have an absolutely fabulous time tickets are available now for £9.50 from the kingsplace.co.uk website you get a discount if you buy multiple tickets so you can come see us see Seth Rollins double duty Kevin Matten here pull up the whole festival on his back before his knee gives out and do double duty with the Attitude Podcast and then you can go see maybe the likes of oh I don't know maybe Plumbing the Death Star or Paul F. Tompkins and Schmanners as well so there is a pretty much an elite level of podcasting is going to be there you get a discount if you buy three tickets there's a whole bill of events all available to check out on kingsplace.co.uk or check out the hashtag London Podcast Festival we can't wait to see all of you there we got to meet all of our lovely fans last year and had such a lovely time and we're going to have a Q&A there as well live and a chance to hang out with everyone afterwards we'll sign things take pictures whatever you want we'll be there we hope to see you there as well until next time when we're going to be talking about the prize fighter kevin owens 
It's going to be a goodbye from me, Kevin. And a goodbye from me, Joe. And we'll see you next time on How To Wrestling. See ya!